Westorians. Welcome back to another episode of Valar Reredis for the World of Ice and Fire. George R. R. Martin deeply embeds world building into A Song of Ice and Fire. We all are, in part, products of our environment and surroundings, and so too are the characters he's written. This authentic interplay between these fundamental aspects of our own existence is one of the more important ways he's managed to make this very fantastical setting feel authentic and real. Our reread of The World of Ice and Fire allows us to better understand the world these characters exist in, the platform on which the story rests. We won't limit ourselves just to looking at the world building, though. We will take a look as well at the building of the world building. Pointing out influences, sometimes what we call meta-history, will get extra time in the spotlight. Of course, we'll do the same level of research and data gathering, and it's always a focus for us. We always like to be well-prepared. And uh, because the nature of this portion of the reread is more open-ended, we're lining up a large number of guests. Some of them are going to be returning guests. Uh, others will be first-timers. And some of them will be subject matter experts on some of these meta-history subjects, right? Like, um, well, Elio Garcia isn't a meta-history <laughs> expert. He's a direct subject matter expert. But we're going to have some other people who are experts on things like uh, China, so we can get kind of the influences of things like E.T., We've got, um, we're going to have a, someone who's an expert on Carthage, so we can talk about war elephants and ancient slavery. So that'll be fun. We'll be announcing those. So if you want to keep an eye on what's coming, good thing to do is to join us on our social media platforms, either Facebook or Discord or Patreon, Twitter. Uh, you get updates there as well. So that's all well and good. But Are you going to have any experts on expertise? <laughs> that would be a good idea. What we need is an expert on beverages to tell us what the hell it is that you, you're doing every week. Uh, what are you doing this week with your drink? This week I have a mix of naked drink, the berry protein naked drink, mm -hmm. and also bang. Bang! Oh, bang. you got some yeah. bang. <laughs> a sugar-free, caffeinated, it's got all kinds of different nutrients in it to, and I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but I found out about this drink from a show on HBO called How To with John Wilson. It's kind of a <laughs> documentary-ish so <laughs> type show. He kind of goes down rabbit holes of different topics. It's really insightful and entertaining and sometimes kind of a little poignant. Produced uh, by Nathan for you. But he runs into this drink, bang, and it was, yeah, I tried it out. It was good, yeah. Yeah. yeah but no Mountain Dew. No Mountain Dew. That oh. is a surprise. Less sugar in my drink today. Oh, but going still bang, bang instead of Mountain Dew. <laughs> yeah, we highly recommend John uh, John Wilson's How To. It's really good. I've been having a drink lately that uh, someone told me was like a Sean drink. I've been making the blue milk from Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. They have an actual blue milk blue milk there. And it's, Does it include Blue Mountain Dew? No. <laughs> it is um, uh, really healthy, actually. Yeah, it's no got rice milk, coconut milk, cream of coconut, pineapple juice, watermelon juice, some lime juice, dragon fruit flavoring, and that's the key, spirulina for the blue, and some sugar to make it less healthy. But it's really <laughs> good. It's frozen. You, it's like a slushy drink that you make. Um, so I even uh, got hey. that. We got it. We I was sold at Coconut Juice. Yeah. We tried it down at, at Star Wars Galaxy's Edge down there in Florida. And Shea was just like, I want to make this when we get home. So she was on a mission. And I, I failed uh, one time. It was not perfect. But finally, I got the right copycat recipe. So if you want a copycat recipe for it, let me know. I got That's it right. figured out. When I see Sean next, I will definitely make it for him. It is good. And it I would good. definitely mix it with Blue Mountain Dew. <laughs> <laughs> of course you would. Of course you would. 
Shout out to Nina for her help on our documents. Uh, she's always adding notes here and there. And, and her advice on Galaxy's Edge. That's in the chat true. Right now, Speaking she said, of, direct any questions about it towards her. Yes, Nina is very knowledgeable about Galaxy's Edge. She made our trip go a lot smoother, even though we have friends that live there. Even <laughs> So <laughs> she knew things even they didn't know. Uh, on her blog right now, there's an re- interesting question about why did Illyrio give Tyrion so many hints about Aegon slash Young Griff? What's his aim there? What's the deal? Why is he trying to let Tyrion figure it out rather than telling him? Or uh, Anyway, that's the discussion. It's a very interesting question. I thought that was a, a fun read. We sure do appreciate you all who are patrons of History of Westeros. You are our main uh, fuel, so to speak, and we are going to keep it going. So that's... Uh, that's the thing I like to say to you all. We appreciate you. Let's get going here. Uh, questions are, of course, welcome, as always. For those of you who listen to the podcast version of this, it always drops uh, usually very Monday, very Monday, <laughs> very early Monday morning. But we do the live streams at three o'clock on Sunday, pretty much universally. All, the only time we deviate from the three o'clock Eastern live streams on Sunday is when we do TV show analysis. And that's because we base our a schedule around when the TV show is, which traditionally has been on Sunday, so it's not a very good time to do it. <laughs> uh, we also do game streams uh, at 6 on Fridays. That's not every Friday, but it's a lot of Fridays, and that's me playing the game Crusader Kings 2 with the extremely well-developed A Song of Ice and Fire mod. It's extremely uh, thorough and detailed and awesome, and we, we have a great time gathering with fellow historians, chatting and um, gaming and seeing what happens. Lots of cool stuff happens and people weigh in with advice. It's like people in the chat are like the small council, except I call y'all the large council. (laughs) So that's that. Sean, now you had some leftover tidbits from last week, some things that you were thinking about, some things that uh, tickled your, your brain. So let's start with a couple of those things and then work our way into a nice thorough discussion of the children of the forest, which will work its way into the coming of the first men. We'll be uh, jumping around a little bit to that part of the topic, but focusing as much as we can on the children. All right. So what do you got, Sean? I try to always go back and watch the stream and read the comments that people make on YouTube and the the chat during the stream, just so you all know. And by the way, I'd be more than happy to friend you or follow you on Facebook or Twitter or anything. I'm dancing, Sean, by the way. I I like the interaction. I think that's Part of why we're all here, right? Yeah. And so I wanted to point out one thing that came up there that I thought was interesting. A few people were like uh, involved in a discussion around an idea that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, we talked about how some of the Maesters' beliefs or understandings about the history of the world, much like our, our real world understanding of history, was very off, like the, the history of the earth. For, for most of you know, human history, we didn't have a real good idea. And we just had like maybe some religious or mythological, you know, 6,000 years old or something like that. And now we know it's like humans have been around for tens of thousands. Civilization has been around for, you know, maybe depending on how you define it, but, you know, many, many thousands of years and humans, many thousands more and planet hundreds, millions of years old, you know. So the idea that they think that it's only 40,000 is probably way, way off. But written history is much smaller, right? Like okay. verifiable history as opposed to, you know, dug up archaeological, theoretical, what we can construe sort of history. And it, the idea was pointed out that they might be wrong in the other direction there, maybe partly intentionally, mm-hmm. that it makes sense that the age of houses 
and the, the lengths of kingdoms would probably be exaggerated, especially when they don't know, when it can't quite be verified, or when they're attempting to corroborate it with something else that might kind of make sense to them. And, and, and for example, you know, in addition to like, you can see you know, motivations to exaggerate it and, and all kinds of reasons why it would be inaccurate, even if they were trying to be uh, correct or honest or whatever in the first place. But we even see evidence for this. Like, Sam can only account for 674 Lord Commanders. Yeah. Even though there's supposedly a thousand. You're right. So, and that's, if, even if that's only 10 years per commander, that's still that's a lot. Yeah. Hundreds of years, <laughs> you know, that they're, that they're off. Uh, anyway, it was, it was just a, a, a neat idea to think about, especially when we're talking about considering the sources. You can easily imagine, you know, when some maester is trying to figure out how old a house is and there's some whole, and actual evidence, is he going to tell the Lord that their house is older? Or <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Right? Yeah, you know, he's like, not going <laughs> to make them. Yeah, when they when age is equals prestige, they're not going to be like, actually, right. our house is two thousand years younger than you think. Yeah, that's not that wouldn't go over well, would it? Be like, now nah, let's just not yeah. tell anyone. Find me a new maester. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's a really good point, Sean. Yeah, there's there's definitely been something that people have talked about off and on since the early books because you're right. There's there are some things that don't quite add up, but it's too hazy to say for sure that there are things off because the haze both masks the truth and increases the, the, the status quo's ability to protect its, its nature. There's other reasons, too, why that might be pushed to the past. Like if people are, if some of the, so many of the people writing down things early times were septons, then they would have a reason potentially to distance themselves from the time of the old gods. How maybe pushing the belief and worship in the old gods farther back into history would uh, be good for their agenda um, as they're trying to turn Westeros into a place that worshiped the seven. Because right now, like we see things in current times, it's not super contentious, the seven versus the old gods, right? But it was back in the day, like long time ago when the worship of the, of the old gods was the dominant religion. So there was a lot more pushback and back and forth between those two uh, forces, as well as the long night. Like, the long night is confusing. Like, when did it happen? How long really was it? And what was the trigger for it? It, it would make a lot of sense if the reason the long night happened was because the Andals violated the pact. Um, and of course, the Andals weren't part of the pact, but if, you know, the children viewed all of humanity as subject to the pact and this new wave of humans comes in and starts cutting down the, the werewoods. Well, either that's a violation or a, of the pact or it's the same problem that the first group of humans created by killing, you know, their memories and their, their gods. So either way, you could see why they would want to put some distance between that or um, put it farther back in the past or conceal the fact that if they're the Andals, the, certainly the writer of this book, when he, <laughs> when he gets to the section about the Andals, he's very praiseworthy. He's like, one race was plucky enough to blah, blah, blah. You know, he's like proud. <laughs> <laughs> it's like his home team. So the point being, like, if history blamed the long night on the Andals and the ruling ethnicity is the Andals, you could see why they would... Eh, Maybe uh, maybe we're not so sure. I don't know. The long night was farther back then. You know, maybe put a little uh, a little separation between that that the idea that it was their fault. 
so yeah, it's a really good topic to raise, folks. Um, any uh, any of the rest of you out there have thoughts on that? Certainly, uh, drop them for us. I want to give credit to someone in the chat named Dave Usher. They had a suggestion or that I thought was uh, pretty good, pretty clever. That maybe the speech with ravens, the ravens' ability to speak and humans with them and back and forth and such, maybe that was forgotten on purpose. Especially when you think about how valuable a thing that was in general, but maybe the maesters didn't want the children to know mm. all their communications back and forth via ravens. So they write it down and attach to the raven. They get to still communicate with each other without the children having full knowledge of everything. That's a really good idea because for one thing, it's supported elsewhere. The idea that the first men were paranoid about, if not, and maybe it wasn't paranoid, right? The line, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not watching you. Well, that's exactly what I mean because they were, the first men were afraid the children were watching them through the eyes of the werewoods. So, and they may have also been, you know, just watching them from like the trees and, and other places. So they probably were watching them. Yeah, like I would have watched them too. Just like if you could watch the children, you would do that. But the children are the sneakier ones. So yeah, so you're right, because why would you give up such a valuable, useful technology? It's one thing to just lose it. But like if everyone's doing it, if you have like a whole uh, society that's using it and everyone forgets how to do it, or just, you know, a, a large group of people forget, that is a little hard to to figure, right? Like why would they? But yeah, but if, if, if they were... Suspicious. It would disappear, and there's a motivation for it actively disappearing. So I, I feel like it adds up. Yeah, if you whip up people into a panic or about that, or as I've alluded to, it might not be panic. It might be real. They may really have been a... Maybe they really were being watched. So yeah, to stop them from doing that and tying messages to the bird is... Um, yeah, the children can't see the, what's written There's, there's means, method, and motivation for this. So, yeah. yeah, Good call, Dave Usher. I like that. I like that idea. Uh, Here Be Dragons says, Greetings from Stephen, Nessie, John, Leaf, Laura, Jared, Kelly, Julie, William, Blue, and Christine live from Here Be Con. Oh, they've got their own little convention going on down there. That's so cool. I forgot that was going on this weekend. Congrats, y'all. That's fantastic. They organized a, a convention uh, with the listeners of Here Be Dragons and got that to work. It's not, That's no small thing to pull off. So congrats on that, friends. I'm proud of y'all, and I hope you're having a great time. And uh, We'll see you soon, I hope. So, the children of the forest, a.k.a. those who sing the Song of Earth. We obviously got started on them last time, but it was sort of a bleed-in from the Dawn Age discussion. So let's get a little more focused on certain things. And we're going to talk a lot about the magical aspects, but let's get set with just the basics of what they look like. Because frankly, when you think about what they look like, it's kind of scary. They really do look... Um, creepy. <laughs> and uh, pick, And the reason I think this is a, kind of important to think about is that we're eventually going to be talking, well, not eventually, pretty soon, uh, going to be talking about the coming of the first men. And you're the, some of the first men. You're, you're exploring this strange new land. Not only are you seeing these weird trees with their bone white and red leaves that look like no other tree you've ever seen, and they have these creepy faces on them, but some of your friends saw some of these three-foot-tall, cat-like eyes with big ears just, like, hanging out right behind the tree. Or did you think you see that? Did you really see that? Or was that just a, something out of the corner of your eye? Yeah. So, really creepy. They're only a few feet tall. They're quick. They're graceful. Nut-brown skin like deer. The dappling of, like, some, some parts is, like, pale. Like, the, the fur kind of changes color. Three fingers and a thumb 
like The Simpsons, <laughs> but with uh, <laughs> but with black cloth. That's creepy. Yeah, that's creepy, right? Now. I'm <laughs> trying to make them sound creepy, and I relate them to The Simpsons. That's not really <laughs> the right vibe I'm going for here. Now, with black black claws at the end of their fingers, I think that's something that a lot of people forget about. They actually have clawed hands, like ooh. And they have, like I said, big ears, and then the eyes are slitted like a cat's and colored like cats, green and gold, except for when they are the rare uh, green seer type, in which case they're a deep green uh, rather than a greenish gold and or red, which stands out even more. And as far as where they live, it says we're told they lived all over, all over the continent. But that's not entirely true because there's certain areas that they don't like. For example... They love caves and swamps and obviously forests and hollow hills and things like that. But desert? They don't like deserts. I mean, who does, really? Uh, seas and coasts, though. Humans like seas and coasts, but children of the forest are like, nah, they're not so big on that unless the forest comes relatively close to it. Planes? No, they're not big into planes. That's, it's not safe out there. And um, there's not as much for them to do or hide from. Yeah, they like, their, they like being closer to their caves. And they're probably not big on higher mountains either. They might like the lower level mountains. I'm kind of, that one's I'm not as so sure about because there's not as much food up there. But on the other hand, they like caves. So I don't know. What do you, how does that register with you, Sean? I think mountains to me is a little bit of a, where I, I'm not so sure. And we're kind of working on guesswork here. I, I was thinking as, as you were talking, a lot of these things, there's such a difference between the Appalachian Mountains and the Rocky Mountains, for example. Yeah, like 300 you million know? years, yeah. <laughs> well, well, also just the, the, <laughs> how steep it is, how dry or rocky or forested. There's a lot of range in what a mountain is. Yeah, a lot of range. And, nice. Yeah. <laughs> well said. And, and even that goes for deserts too. Not that I expect the children to necessarily like any deserts, but you know, some deserts can be, at least some times of the year, can be pretty flush can can be pretty green and growth it's it's like deserts for example are defined by rainfall that's true and so on the higher end of the range of a desert during the rainy season you know it looks like a paradise and uh and even within deserts there can be an oasis and same thing mountains some mountains up you know toward the poles are just frozen over and desolate some mountains are in deserts and are completely dry and barren like but some mountains are in the middle of a jungle and they're full of trees and vines of vegetation and those might be more appealing maybe you know so um there 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 can be a range in all or combinations of of these different terrain types that could make it more or less appealing to the children and you know westeros is a pretty big continent with a pretty big (laughs) range so true that so so maybe we'll have to that's one maybe we'll we'll ping Ilya on as well, see what he thinks about mountains. But I'm, I'm trying to think about them in, in places like caves and tunnels because we know they love that. Imagine them in Cashley Rock before people came. Like, I wonder if they lived in there. <laughs> that would make sense. It's like, this is a pretty nice spot. Of imagine, course we lived there. Imagine them in Valyria. Ooh, geez. <laughs> They'd be like, we need to get out of here. Yeah, this place is going to go. Volcanic <laughs> children, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a good example of this is, sure, we've seen the, the cave that Bran is in. And that's creepy for its own reasons. There's all those skulls and all that. But it's not the only cave we've seen. Although, Sean, I'm not sure you've seen this one because you you haven't read Ariane 2, The Winds of Winter, have you? I don't think I have. Okay, well, let's have, so we, we have a little quote here from it. And all at once, she found herself in another cavern, five times as big as the last one, surrounded by a forest of stone columns. Damon Sand moved to her side and raised his torch. Look how the stone's been shaped, he said. Those columns and the wall there, see them? 
faces, said Ariane. So many sad eyes, staring. This place belonged to the children of the forest. Right, so this is a, a good deal different. I'm going to have to read that chapter now. Yeah, you will. Yeah, it's really cool. And it's, and it's exactly what you said. It's an example of a cave that's in a forest. Like they're making their way through the rainwood. This is in the Stormlands. So they're, they're making their way through from one of the most lush forests. It's close to jungle. It's not quite jungle. I don't think it qualifies as jungle, but it's pretty close. So they found these caves. It's a good place for them to, to get, stay dry. And, and uh, young Elia goes wandering and finds blind white fish and gets pretty far out there. So it's, yeah, it's, it's vast. And you want to know how deep they go? Well, even the children don't know. According to Leaf, the one child who speaks common, I almost said English, <laughs> the, the common tongue, <laughs> they go to the so-called, the quote, the very center of the earth, which I don't know how literal that is. Probably not the actual center. Maybe they do. They just can't actually go into the caves because it's too hot. But it gives you, it it makes me wonder if, later we're going to talk about the Ifekevron, who are potentially the children of the forest from Essos. The thing is, how did they ever deviate? How did the children of the forest from Westeros and Essos get so separate? Well, one possibility is they crossed the land bridge. Problem with that is it's so deserty, the children are actively avoid deserts, we're told, uh, at least such a large amount of desert. So I'm not sure they would cross the land bridge, but I mean, maybe it was a Pangea before. Yeah, well, I mean, well, uh, what what would the climate have been then? Right, the climate could have been different, true. Yeah, yeah that's, that's another point. That's assumption. a great point. So there's a lot of possibilities. And there may have been some other motivation to do something they wouldn't normally do, whether it's, you know, mm, like a, true. a drought or a war or some other thing. Because you're right, like, that's a great point because almost certainly it was some form of climate change that caused the first men to cross the Isthmus in the first place. That's why ancient mankind crossed from Eurasia to the Americas. Um, they weren't moving because of climate change specifically. It was more indirect. It was like the herds that they relied on to eat were moving because of climate change and they needed to stay with the herds. They preferred to be in warmer places, but they were going to go, if the herds went to cold places, they were going to have to go there too. So uh, that's very similar, very similar concept. Like you move with the weather and we're talking large scale time frames here. But the other possibility is if these tunnels actually go super, super deep like that, I wonder if they actually could go below the ocean floor and then emerge back out. I mean, there's, I'm not even sure if that's a, such a thing as like geologically possible, but you know, it's George's world. He can write it how he wants, but it's a neat idea, isn't it? Like that the tunnels go that far down, they go under the ocean. I'm like, really? Wow, kind of cool. <laughs> but, if it's, but if they go to the center of the earth, that's kind of what he's it's sort of indicating that, right? Yeah, I wish I knew a little bit better how it worked, but it, one, I sometimes wonder why caves aren't just full of water and maybe caves in more rainy areas are. Um, yeah. Maybe it has to do with like coming up and back down. But also, I'm pretty sure at a certain depth, the pressure would be so great. Yeah. Like it would be, I, I don't know for sure, but I assume that it might be too hard for humans or children or whatever to, to breathe properly. But That's a good point too. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, maybe George will tell us one day. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny because I'm thinking about the type of like side research and, and stuff that I've been reading. When we did the regular reread, the regular portion of that, I, I found myself looking up like historical anecdotes, like things that compare like different kings and kingdoms and queens and religions and things that like George was 
influenced by or things that are similar to things that he's written or, or perhaps other fantasy stories, other influences, like, which that we do have for this. But I find myself in this reread mostly looking up science, you know, looking at things like that, like caves and weather and climate and microbes. <laughs> and like I was looking mm-hmm. at mountains. As you brought up, I'm so happy you brought up the Appalachians and the, and the Rockies because I was literally just reading about that last night and looking at Orogeny, which is the formation of mountains. It's very realistic that Dorne is a desert given all those mountains around it because mountains block moisture. And uh, that's often how it ends up working. So anyway, that's something we'll talk about a little more later. But I'm just really enjoying, uh, I wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> I'm having so much fun, just the science rabbit holes and, that are coming along here. Another interesting quote from Leaf: a thousand thousand of your man years is what she says that they've been living in those caves, which is a big contrast from the line we've been singing these songs for 10,000 years. So, but they're not saying the same thing, is it? One is saying we've lived in these caves for a million years. Because again, to be clear, a thousand thousand years is a million, which by the way, immediately sets the date of the earth a lot farther back. (laughs) That 40,000 date gets even farther wrong. (laughs) So maybe the magic, the singing of the songs, that part might've been, that's something we briefly touched on last time. That, That is supported by this, thing that I noticed. If they've been singing the songs for only relatively recently, 10, 20,000 years, but they've existed for a million years, well, that fits. They didn't evolve and immediately start doing the most advanced linguistic, musical, magical stuff, right? That probably took some time. I've also got to say I'm suspicious of the million years. I don't necessarily think that that's true. It's probably an exaggeration, but even if it's some vast, maybe it's 100,000, you know, it's still a huge yeah, number. It right? still could be a much larger than 40,000, and it might not necessarily be dishonest, but I don't think it's necessarily true. It is, it is realistic, though. I will say that because I, when, when I have been looking at the life cycle of species, this is something I learned at Worldcon, uh, Discon, as it was called, was that we have, from fossil records, we have an, an idea of that, we used to have an idea that species could live for a few million years, but it's more like the average life cycle of a species is about a million years. So that's, that's surprisingly realistic. I'm not sure if George just kind of got lucky with that number or if it's just kind of worked out, but yeah, just, just recently was told that by a paleontologist in a presentation that it's roughly a million years. This is pretty good, pretty good. I, to be clear, I don't suspect, I, I, I'm not suspicious of a species being able to last a million years. And in fact, I, I bet if, if a million is typical, then some live much longer than a million, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's, there's all sorts of outliers. Yeah, there's, yeah. <laughs> but I'm more suspicious of how able they are to, be, to keep track of it being a million. Does that make sense? Uh, okay. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Like they're not marking down dates, right? Even though yeah, they have it yeah, all they memorized. Had a calendar, yeah. like existing as a species for a million years, is different from having a calendar for a million. That's years, a great point. Know? Yeah, like how do they know? What what are they counting? Like so, there's just no. Yeah, you're right. There's they may. You wonder how they keep track of time. Like how would they know? He says your man years. So they may have some way of keeping track. I don't. know, They yeah. count the tree rings. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> But it might be some magical thing. Who knows? You're, you're right to, to be yeah. a little skeptical, though. I'm with you there. For it implies sure. that she can do the math, too, that they count what a man year is. Yeah. Who did this conversion? Yeah. And that man years are even consistent. Like, that's an yeah. issue, too. That's going to come up in a book, even, right? That it's hard for them to figure out 
that's how a good to point. track the seasons. Yeah, you know? that's a great point. Yeah, what are they tracking by? Yeah, what is a man? Hey, what what other years do you have? What do you have? Child years? What kind of year do you have here? Singer years? What is that? <laughs> What's the word for that? Yeah, a thousand million of your child years, <laughs> a thousand thousand of your man years, and a thousand hundred of your women years. <laughs> to go to some year exchange. <laughs> Thirty-seven dog years. <laughs> So green sears and skin changers. Let's talk about that. That's a nice uh, big subtopic uh, rabbit hole to get into. Let's start with a quote from our man, Maester Yandel. Legend further holds that the green sears could also delve into the past and see far into the future. But as all our learning has shown us, the higher mysteries that claim this power also claim that their visions of things to come are unclear and often misleading. A useful thing to say when seeking to fool the unwary with fortune-telling. Though the children had arts of their own, the truth must also be separated from superstition. And knowledge must be tested and made sure. The higher mysteries, the arts of magic, were and are beyond the boundaries of our mortal ability to examine. Oh, is it now? Hmm, I'm not sure about that. No, it kind of is. Like, it's, def- it's definitely true for him. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, we readers with our... Um, faux narrative perspective get different ideas. So we were able to question this. Now, he's not wrong about a lot of that, even though he is wrong on some of the main points, like visions of the future are unclear. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's, that seems to be universally true across all the different forms of prophecy and dreaming that we've seen. There's all sorts of haze and misinterpretations and, and things like that. But, and he's also right to say that this is a useful thing for, you know, the equivalent of fortune telling scams, which are a big part in uh, in the real world and um, makes sense they would exist in a place like Westeros. They've been around in the real world for, for centuries, so why not in Westeros as well? But he's wrong in conflating the two, right? An uncertain vision doesn't mean it's fortune-telling, right? <laughs> it's just yeah, uncertain yeah. vision. So Nina writes, although this explanation has definitely helped Melisandre, because, yeah, she has skirted the line a bit um, using the uncertainty of what's going on to clarify it for others in her own way, right? Because we know she's wrong about some things. We also know she may not be entirely lying. But anyway, that's a whole other subject. The point being, she's absolutely willing to work that uh, angle. And, of course, there's... Other examples, like she mentioned Stannis' defeat by someone in Renly's armor, you know, the gray girl on the dying horse. Those things were seen in visions and misinterpreted because they were deception that the vision itself couldn't penetrate. Uh, the vision showed Renly's armor, so people thought it was Renly, but of course it was Garland. <laughs> so yeah, what is your, um, what's your response to that, Sean? Yeah, it's a, I, I definitely like just reading that sentence there, like, beyond the boundaries of our mortal ability to examine. Well, yeah, I don't know. How do you define examine? I think it's, I don't think it's beyond the boundaries of examination. Maybe beyond the boundaries of conclusion, but it's not like mm. you can't examine them. And not. So, I, I, you know, I, maybe he's downplaying it a little too much or being a little too certain got that, about his statement. He's got that citadel uh, attitude, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but, uh, but at the same time, he does, he doesn't like rule out that it exists as a potential. So That's I don't true. Know, I'm trying to give him some credit for being fair, but but I don't I don't like the wording of his statement <laughs> here. Especially with the knowledge that we happen to have. Uh, but it is true what he's saying. It is very convenient. And imagine if uh, you know in a world where there really are 
mystical elements, you know, magic or gods or, or visions or, you know, dragons, et cetera, et cetera. I feel like it would be even more commonplace for people to be making false claims or, or what they even believe to be true, but that turn out to be false. Even in, And when people are trying to make true, really do have visions, they might believe it even more. They've been more yeah. convinced of their misinterpretations. Yeah. And so it's, and that might make a septon or, or, a, or a maester be even more suspicious, even though in this world it is a, a reality. So that's, yeah, good said, good said. The, um, the idea too that you can't, if there was people casting spells, you know, like physically present, uh, you could treat it like science, it, meaning you could cast a spell mark down the results, you know, see all the data and then, you know, keep trying it and get a, you know, a variety of examples and a sample size and, and, uh, you know, experiment. Basically you can, if magic were real, it would be experimented with and you would have, you could apply science to it, even if it were incomplete. I mean, we apply science to reality, but we, it doesn't mean we've solved reality, right? There's a lot of things we don't understand. So you would do the same thing with magic if it were a force that we could work with, uh, which I think that's sort of what Yandel is expressing here. And that's a great part of a lot of other works of fiction, particularly fantasy, where magic is a little more organized, a little more understood. And like basically any fantasy series with a magic school is a perfect example of that. You know, a little bit of a tangent, but when I play D&D, I tried to keep magic as at a minimum, at as a minimum as possible, because because of that, because if there were, if someone could just you know cast a magic missile, eventually someone would have made an engine powered by magic missiles. You know yeah. what I mean? Like <laughs> it would just have other technological impacts, and there would be more scientific research trying to figure it out. And but when you keep it at a minimum, if it's like newer or harder to find, or it comes at some expense or whatever, it's hard to have research built around it. And yeah. uh, and even in this world, it, it, you you can imagine if the circumstances lined up just right, that some maester could have gotten together with Daron or someone, and it's like, all right, tell me all your visions, tell me all your dreams, and just try to cross-reference knowledge from around the world, books and everything, trying to see when they line up or wh- what symbols could mean compared to other people's dreams. So far, there doesn't seem to be a lot of attempt to do that, but but there could be, right? Yeah. It's not beyond the boundaries of examination. Yeah, well point, well point, for sure. It seems to me that what authors like to do is to create these vast high magic societies that are super advanced to have them be destroyed so that their characters can exist in some post-world without that, where it was a memory, where it, whether it's Valyria, uh, something far away, or something more close by, like in the Wheel of Time, or uh, there's a lot of examples of, you know, uh, there's a, there's a, so many apocalypses are, are present in a lot of fantasy novels. Um, prior to the apocalypse, things were a lot more advanced. You can, there's so many examples, I don't even need to list more of them. But it's a, it's an, it's a really fun thing because in almost all these cases, a lot of any interested fans can have that to dig into, uh, whatever that particular author has given them. And it's often something that gets expanded on because it's, it's very com- compelling, even if it's uh, rarely a direct part of the story. But we're talking about an ancient low magic era or high magic, low tech era here. But the level of magic, just how high is unclear. For example, 
a, a bit later, we're going to get into events like, yeah, the, the shattering of the arm of Dorne and the, the hammer of the waters, all that, and whether or not those were natural disasters or magic or maybe a little of both. And to build up to that, we have to show what kind of powers they have. And, and to ask that question properly, we need to set some groundwork. Let's start with uh, a little bit of a little bit more of this concept of how they are able to keep these memories, right? We talked about <laughs> passing on knowledge. Well, how do the singers pass on their magical arts to each other? Some of that is because of the werewoods remembering everything, right? The, the memories of dead folk, dead children get stored. And uh, presumably that can be drawn on by future generations. Not exactly clear what the mechanism of that is, whether it's some sort of pseudo consciousness or whether it's more hands-on where they're being taught things by their elders, you know, in like, like tutoring, uh, if they go into a trance in the Weirwood network and things get passed down and it's, it's not clear. Uh, I think we may get some more clarity on it if we see a little bit more of Bran's training, but let's start with someone who helped Bran, uh, get to this point. Instead, they had the trees and their Weirwoods above all. When they died, they went into the wood, into leaf and limb and root, and the trees remembered all their songs and spells, their histories and prayers, everything they knew about this world. Maesters will tell you that the werewoods are sacred to the old gods. Singers believe they are the old gods. When singers died, they became part of that godhood. So that is pretty much pretty clear. I mean, this is one of the points at which the, the Jojen is extremely... Uh, insightful. This is far more than what we could get from someone like Yandel, at least on this topic. Obviously, Yandel's knowledge is going to vastly exceed Jojen's in other areas, but not about the, the children and not about the old gods. So this is pretty much straight up, right? He's just saying, yeah, uh, the songs and spells. He uses that word, those, those specific terms. That goes into the werewoods. When they die, that knowledge is preserved. That's really neat. And it does explain how they're able to keep this going without writing things down. Green Dreams, while we're on the subject of Jojen, because he's a sort of a, a side note here. He's not as... His type of magic isn't as clear, uh, clear from what Yandel described. He talks about you know, the singers. He talks about the old gods. He talks about people that can skin change. He talks about green seers. But green dreamers, that sort of in-between mode, which, you know, green seers can do both. They can skin change and they can have green dreams and they can do all this other stuff. That's just how that works. But, but the maesters aren't clear on that. So we need to be clear on that <laughs> because that's, uh, that's what we like to do. So this gives, this calls back to what we were just discussing with regards to the uncertainty of visions. For example, Jojen says, I dreamt that the sea was lapping all around Winterfell. I saw black waves crashing against the gates and towers, and then the salt water came flowing over the walls and filled the castle. Drowned men were floating in the yard. Now, of course, we understand that now. That was the coming of Theon and his men to Drowned men is a sneaky reference to the ironborn worshippers being in the yard. Salt water flowing over the walls was they climbed over the walls to get in the castle. Blackway is crashing against the towers probably refers to the diversion that he had his men create to allow them to sneak up over the walls while the, the other guys were distracted. So you definitely got to give Yandel some credit for being right about how uncertain these things are. Like there's a perfect example from one of the best sources we've ever had. And at the time, it was pretty hard to understand what the heck he was talking about. He didn't know what he was talking about. 
other than like specific people dying. He's like, well, that guy's going to die. I know he's going to die. But, but he didn't have a lot of, it was like step one problem. Step three, this guy's going to die. He didn't, he couldn't see what step two was, right? <laughs> it's a big, big old conundrum there. I think step two is profit. Oh, is it? Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I think step two is question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> Wait a minute. Step two is profit. Oh, <laughs> I used to work for a company, uh, I co-founded a company called IT Profits, and it was the PH type, but it didn't work out very well as a name because people always thought it was the other word, the other, just bring you know, make money. <laughs> We're like, we would correct them. And it's like, boy, this, this, this name takes a lot of effort. <laughs> 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 we should have been able to see that coming. <laughs> 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 but we did not. We are not green seers, then or now. <laughs> I do want to just at least touch real quick. I think it might be somewhere else in a document this this comes up more. But I reading that quote by Jojen just makes you think about the perspective of a weirwood tree being cut down Oof, in a new way. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah. it's painful. It's not just killing a god. It's it's like chopping a like a section out of a library or like a whole bookshelf or something like that. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. All those things at once, you know, and it's the soul, living soul of some long dead person that yeah. they care about. It's the life, the memory, the, the, I don't know, the symbol, the, it's, it's so many things. Yeah. And it might be, and there may be more to it than that even. And that, that's enough. But if it, if there's yeah. more to <laughs> it, then ouch. Yeah, you're right. That's really, it's really painful. It's really tragic. And it's a lot of it is from miscommunication from, from fear of the unknown. Well, maybe. <laughs> There's certainly that. There may be other things too. So here is the next quote about green seers that indicates they were in charge. Yet no matter the truth of their arts, the children were led by their green seers, and there is no doubt that they could once be found from the lands of faraway winter to the shores of summer sea. They made their homes simply, constructed no holdfasts or castles or cities. Instead, they resided in the woods, in crannogs, in bogs and marshes, and even in caverns and hollow hills. It is said that in the woods, they made shelters of leaves and wives up in the branches of trees, secret tree towns. It has long been held that they did this for protection from predators such as dire wolves or shadow cats, which their simple stone weapons and even their vaunted green seers were not proof against. So that word is withies. I thought it was wives too when I saw oh. it. And it's just a uh, willow branch. Simple as that. <laughs> Yeah, so that's it's kind of like you're talking about D&D there for a minute, and this just comes up. Like, lots of RPG games, that's a really common recurring theme, right? You've got wizards who have powerful magic, but they don't have a lot in the way of physical strength. Like, they're often the frailty, the weakness. That's, that's a pretty common uh, pairing, right? If you have this great power, well, then that's your, that's your cost, is that you have to have a weaker body or what, whatever, however you want to express that. It, I think it's a familiar concept, right, Sean? Yeah, definitely. I really like the idea when I ran D&D to be a little bit, there's all kinds of like methodologies for constructing your character. Yeah. Also kind of assuming a, a good portion of our audience out there plays and or play D&D. I'm not totally think so, yeah. talking no one about this. But as a DM, a lot of times I like my characters to just to decide what their stats were rather than be bound by die rolls. But I wanted them to make the stats realistic and, and to have a history and a meaning behind the, you know, if you have 18 strength, okay, how did you get it? Did you grow up on a farm lifting bales of hay? Mm. If you have 18 intelligence, would your, was your father a professor? Like, what's the story or the meaning behind all this, you know? 
and and I would try to find ways as a DM if someone was like taking advantage of this leeway and you know, my character is all 18. You know, well, there would be some penalty for that. You're like, there, someone's after you. Like there's bounties on your head because you're wealthy. How'd you get all 18s without some kind of wealth? Well, people are trying to rob you or, you know, you've been ousted from your society. So sure, you have all these stats, but you're not accepted by the wealthy culture anymore because this mistake you made. Yeah. You know, I try to find some <clears throat> counter to the strength, basically, is the idea. D&D D- is basically like coming out with literature, you know, yeah, like yeah. interactive. Without the pros. Yeah. <laughs> this is pretty explicit in A Song of Ice and Fire that most of the ones, but I say most because, Sean, you pointed out a couple of examples where that are counter uh, to this main idea, which is that the old gods tend to the, towards the, the gifted ones tend to towards frailty, like Jojen. Or Bran wasn't frail. At birth, he broke his legs and or his back and became you know, compromised. So it's unclear how that fits into his story exactly. He's also kind of an exception in other ways, given the level of his power. So he is our best example, but not a great example <laughs> because he's an outlier uh, in a lot of ways. Um, Blood Raven's a good example. You mentioned him, right? He's not frail, right? Yeah. And he's maybe not a green seer exactly, but this concept of someone having some mystical power being countered by some physical lacking or whatever is, you know, we, we do see it in some characters like Daron, yeah. right? And, uh, but we don't see in other characters like Blood Raven or maybe the Fiddler. Well, Blood Raven is a, and, is a green seer. He just may not have been one then when he was walking around. Oh, okay. You know I mean? yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's, I was thinking of a uh, dragon having dragon dreams right. is different from yes. green seer. Yes. Well, maybe it's not even different. Maybe it's just how the world perceives it. Maybe it is the same power being drawn upon, but by different groups of people or cultures or whatever. But that's a great point. Um, yeah. Cause like, like you just said, Daron, the dreamer, or the, the the drunkard, he was kind mm-hmm. of frail, or at least had issues. But he wasn't a great warrior. Damon he wasn't frail. He's the, yeah, Damon the second, the fiddler, not a great warrior, but not frail by no means. Like they not, were no, it, not it, at all. He, yeah. he just was not as good as he thought he was. <laughs> but totally, yeah. no physical ailments that were detected. Just a, just a big ego. <laughs> and and it makes sense that we're not necessarily going to see George be completely strict about this, uh, you know, yeah. unwritten rule of fantasy or whatever. And of course, that could be a different but, sort of different sort of magic we're talking about with, with the, the Dragon Dreamer stuff. They may not be bound to this frailty thing yeah. that applies to the gifted by the old gods, right? Um, and yeah. Green Seers maybe seem to have a little bit more, I don't know how to say this exactly, but power, right? Yeah, like, I a, agree. A Dragon Dream is almost like a curse. How much power are you getting because of your Dragon yeah, Dream? How do you right? benefit from Green that? Seers, not much, if, if any. Right. Yeah. The, the dreams are so vague and and uh, maybe even yeah. haunt you sometimes. Yeah. But where green seers can actually gain knowledge, and even if their dreams are vague, they also seem to be able to like actually see things through the eyes of trees and maybe go into animals, things like that. That maybe have more specific value, power, or whatever. But yeah, yeah. Anyway, if I may, all this thinking about thinking along these lines. Got it. It occurred to me, you know, if there is some attempt by George to give people with visions some sort of frailty attached to it, I thought, what about Doran? Is it possible that Doran, who seems to have sort of a big picture plan, kind of an aloof mentality, kind of like some of these other characters who are green seers or dreamers are, and it even occurred to me, we, one time we even speculated that Maycar might also have some sort of visions. Yeah. And that we wondered what some of his decisions, when, when he decided to let Dunk, let Egg stay with Dunk, you know, that maybe that was, he had seen something 
maybe even had some fear for his son. You know, he wouldn't want to talk about it, but it was there. Yeah, it's definitely possible. Yeah. Yeah. And then I started to, so, you know, Rita was like, well, is there any other kind of history, you know, of, of there being like Dornish or Martell vision seekers? Is there anything to back this up? I'm like, well, Egg's son, Daron's father or mother was Dornish, right? Mm-hmm. And Makar's mother was Martell. Yeah. So man, I don't know if that, it's not necessarily genetic specific, and Doran, but there's hints and clues is, is also Targaryen. Yeah, like, Doran, Doran has, that is, blood. Has, has Targaryen blood. So they're, they're, Doran has Targaryen. Yes. Oh, so that, that the, backs the, it up in another angle, yeah, too. Daenerys Targaryen married yeah. into Doran, and so all, the, all of the Martells all are um, are descended from the Targaryen. Yeah, I remember, Sean, the, the water gardens were built by the fir- well by a, a previous Daenerys Targaryen who married Maron Martell, who was uh, Doran's ancestor. Well, they're both Doran's. I, I think I was vaguely aware of that, but uh, <laughs> yeah. but not obviously piecing it together. But yeah, so it's definitely anyway, it's, so it's in the bloodline. Yeah, it, it could be. Definitely. We have concluded definitively <laughs> that Doran is having vision. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's it. We've got it. Yep. <laughs> oh, it's it's completely certain. Yep, <laughs> there's no doubt. Yeah, like you never know, and it, you know people. I know people were trying to. There were comparisons made between Doran and Bran just because of the wheelchair thing in the TV show. Now that's not appropriate comparison in terms of that, but it does show you it's an example. It's like, a, it highlights that they're in a similar spot and the, the body frailty, that association is at least worth considering. And the bloodline is there. Now that would be, again, this would be a Targaryen bloodline thing and not an old gods thing, but that's still relevant because we're, we're talking about off and on how so many of these magical things overlap. Uh, what I wanted to bring up also is just the the Dornish, the Roinar do also have, you know, oh, yeah. a relation to water magic, as we'll talk about more here in this in this book when we actually get to the Roinar. But they apparently had water magic, and well, Doran is Roinish. Yeah, and it's not super ancient either. We're talking like Nor- Nymeria's time is hundreds of years in the past, not thousands like some of these other things. So. Yeah, that's even more recent. Um, all right, so moving on a bit here. Uh, there's often a literary theme that goes along with gaining power. Like when you become so powerful, you lose a lot of your humanity. You're no longer, you can't relate to people anymore. Um, that was expressed on the TV show a bit with Bran in a way that I think will be pretty different, but uh, similar in, in concept it's already sort of happening. He's so young and he's getting more and more detached. He still has that childishness in him, but he's being introduced to so many severe, serious burdens of responsibility and power. And um, you wonder how that affected the children as a race when they're the ones with, with this great power. And as they're dwindling and as they're stewards of nature well what they're faced with this conundrum of well what are we supposed to do if people are cutting down our trees taking our power what are they supposed to do about that you know and uh it's it's really uh, there's not an answer i don't think but it's um it's a worthy uh thing to, to bring you know up. some characters like tywin and Roose bolton as they gain more power they didn't lose their human <laughs> <laughs> I guess they were kind of already pretty far gone to start with. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's maybe, uh, uh, you know, almost a sci-fi sort of thought that it's maybe connected to fantasy or whatever, that when someone has a superpower that maybe they become more removed from humanity. And a lot of times that's almost what defines the good guys is they aren't, you know, that Superman is still defined by his humanity. 
but it is uh, it is interesting to think about. And I, I think a lot of, when when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about Doctor Manhattan and the uh, and the Watchmen mm. was kind of a pretty extreme example. You know, he he was just a scientist that became bestowed with godlike powers, and he could travel through time and space. But there was still a part of him that like had friends on Earth, but another part of them who felt like it's irrelevant. Earth is irrelevant, you know, when you yeah. had this sort of <laughs> galactic perspective. Uh, so, yeah, it's also, you know, maybe that's a little extreme, but you can see how maybe the children, Blood Raven brand, might have a different perspective on their family or the Lord of the Realm or whatever yeah, like, when they have this more connected to nature and history and future and survival of mankind or whatever. Yeah, would you want to go hang out with your friends concerns. if you could just see any point in history, you know, and just yeah, watch it and yeah. just find out what happened? You could just do that forever. I mean, you might want to hang out with your friends occasionally, but I don't know. <laughs> I might just I want to show my friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, I'd be like, okay, so then. <laughs> so here's who killed JFK. <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> you could just solve, like, what historical mystery are we going to solve today, friends? And you'd, you'd work very hard to invent a projector that could project your brain. Just, like, watch it as a movie. This really interesting thing that green seers can do to combat the frailty is to wed themselves to the Werewood Network to one of the trees, to one of these thrones. And that's pretty wild, isn't it? Like you, you sacrifice even more of your humanity or your children osity. <laughs> What's the word for that? <laughs> I don't know. Child-osity. Oh, yeah, child enemy. Uh, Child-anity. Child-anity. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Singricity, yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so... That's what they're trying to do with Bran. Like he, and he, it's terrifying to him. He's like, "Am I going to be stuck in one of these trees? Am I? Is that what am I going to? Am I going to look like Blood Raven? Am I going to look like that with mushrooms growing out of my head and branches going through my arms?" And yeah, what you know, what, I can't believe this never occurred to me until just now, Aziz. But think how similar it is to Arya when she's going through the house. Oh of Black yeah, and White. yeah, they're totally transformed. I literally feel silly for not drawing that parallel before. Mm. <laughs> and she's got some of the same things happening. Yeah, it's, it's just like she's in dark magic school or whatever where they're changing her and affecting her. Yeah. And she, but she's also having some of the same dreams. Like she has green dreams and skin change or, and or skin changer dreams. Mostly skin changer dreams, I suppose. Wolf dreams. But also she's... Uh, skin changing into cats and maybe seals and other stuff and not entirely aware of what she's doing. So yeah, she's, she's powerful. I think she's more powerful than John, at least in, in the old gods. Interesting to think about though, it's almost specifically part of what she's being taught. Like she's being taught actively to let go of her humanity, herself, her identity. Oh yeah, or whatever. Yeah, become no one. They're Whereas Brian, it might her. be happening incidentally. Yeah, but it is. You're right. But they are both becoming part of a greater whole. They're losing who they are to become part of some great Greenseer network or faceless collective or whatever you want to call their whole thing. But you're right. Yeah, they're joining some collective intelligence almost, um, and that's a something I've got a lot of notes on here in this episode, collective intelligences <laughs> and, and influences on that. So, so let's keep it going. Well, another thing that I'm wondering about is that we have to keep our eye on is how this got started for people. We understand the children at some point acquired this magic. We're never going to have an answer on that. But we may get a lot closer to how it got into people, right? With the Targaryens, Fire and Blood taught us pretty explicitly that the Targaryens do have a tiny bit of dra actual dragon blood, whatever that means, some sort of magical combination 
so maybe some sort of similar mechanism was used to get this genetics or to apply this genetics to humanity somehow. Because as far as we know, humans, until coming so, to Westeros, humans in Essos weren't, didn't have any of this stuff. Are you telling me a human banged a child of the forest? It's possible. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you drink enough bang and you can... <laughs> because there's a line where Bloodraven says, your blood makes you a green seer. It's in... He's pretty explicitly saying it's in your blood, which means he was born with it. It, it sounds like genetics or magical genetics, if there's even a difference. I don't know. <laughs> and or a, fund, a functional difference anyway. It's inherited, right? It's in his bloodline. But how did this stuff get from the children to humans? Is it worshipping? Is it some sort of blood sacrifice? Is it magical bestowment, magical endowment? Or is it, yeah, is it people banging other species and making <laughs> new species from that? <laughs> That's honestly one of the better theories. <laughs> it's as gross as it is. Because, <laughs> uh, like, look at the children, look at the Kranigman. Or when we even, when that section comes up, it's going to be addressed even by Yandel. You're going to be like, there's something about there, maybe a little closer to the children than other people. And by closer, <laughs> he doesn't yeah. come out and say, We hear about humans and the Ebenese. Yeah. And, and what, what's his face? That nasty slave owner that that held Tyrion and, and Jorah, um, Yezan's okay, guys. He paid to have a giant so he could watch it bang his human slaves. So this guy was awful, yeah. but like, yeah, yeah, right. That's terrifying. But snoo snoo. It could is what that was. What's that? Was death by snoo snoo. Yeah, death by snoo snoo. <laughs> yes, exactly. So this is all like leading into the concept of of skin changing too, because. The idea is pr presented as, you know, controlling or turning into or shape changing because it's not understood by the maesters exactly that the legends say shape changing when actually it's like a spiritual connection, like a magical eye control you through the brain. I can see through your eyes. This is not to say that the Green Seer did not know lost arts that belong to the higher mysteries, such as seeing events at great distances or communicating across half the realm, as the Valerians, who came long after them, did. But mayhaps some of the feats of the Green Seers have more to do with foolish tales than truth. They cannot change their forms into those of beasts, and some would have it, as some would have it. But it seems true that they were capable of communicating with animals in a way that we cannot now achieve. It is from this that legends of skin changers or beastlings arose. Yeah, he said mayhaps. Hmm, yeah, mayhaps some of the feats of... <laughs> but yeah, so he's right. They can't change. There is no shape changing that we know of. That is, you know, a, a good example, maybe a rare example of a maester declaring something tr false that is actually false because some of these other... He says it's that, it's, it's that these fake legends of beastly or of, of shape changers that we get these other fake legends of skin changers it's like somewhat fake legends now he does like a lot of these other things admit that they were once a real thing but they're uh, he, he hints that they're extinct we know that's not true they're very much not extinct our main characters seem to be uh well populated with skin changing abilities and there's several other ones so let's look at some of these palettes let's also delineate some of these powers it's 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 thrown around a lot of ideas but let's, let's try to line it up as much as we can. We've got seeing events at a great distance. We've got communicating across half a realm. We've got things like resurrection, the ice resurrection versus fire resurrection, which 
Mm, that's not one he lists here, but I wanted to add the ones that we know of as well. But that's not really accurate, is it, Sean? You talked about this last time briefly. We didn't get into it deeply, but we brought raised the issue. It's not really resurrection what the others are doing. That's that's raising the dead. Resurrection is a restored to life, whereas raising the dead is just animating corpses. Even if they even if there's a little bit of overlap with maybe they've got a few memories left, they're not independent. They're controlled. They're they're mostly mindless. Even if there's a little bit of humanity left in there, is that kind of how you see it, or do you have a different take? I think that's close. I I, I, I would enjoy, I, I enjoy kind of comparing and contrasting the nuanced definitions of words, synonyms, you know. Yeah. And, and a lot of times, even though a word is mostly interchangeable, there's more of a connotation one way than the other. And, and, and I do, like, for example, I do think of resurrection as basically bringing someone back from the dead as they were. Mm-hmm. But not necessarily, I think if someone was resurrected, but they're, were weakened or had lost some memory and someone called them resurrected, I wouldn't be like, they weren't resurrected. I, I think it's still reasonable <laughs> to, to, to use that word. But, but raising the dead, I similarly, I think if you were to say someone came back as they were and called that raising the dead, I think it'd be okay to use that phrasing, but I think it, that's closer to raising the dead, I think more of like the zombie droning out of a grave, you know. So. Right on, yeah. One other example, though, is the skin changing thing. That one's a little different, right? There isn't a strong parallel that I've seen that I can think of to skin changing on the sort of fire magic side. Yeah, uh, I think the only thing we really have is the connection to dragons. Yeah, which is a, which is something, but it's a like lot they, weaker. Than yeah, that. it's a lot weaker. They do have a connection where they feel each other. Yeah, certainly the whole, I mean, the whole dragon's can't be ridden by two people, two masters thing. That, that could just be an animal behavior thing, but but yeah. it could be magical, you know? Yeah. So there's other see, uh, connections between their, their An writers. attempt at it? I don't know if it counts for Melisandre, her charms, what's the word? Her glamours? Yeah. But I don't know if that's, you know, a fire thing per se, or if that just happens to be a fire, quote unquote, fire wizard using that ability, but it might not be unique to them. I see it as a fire thing because it's a light thing. Like, Glamours okay. are about yeah. deception through light, right? you know, yeah. reflecting what's not there, changing what your uh, uh, the, the the nature of sight is your photons and things like that going into your eyes. Yeah, and you get images in your brain from that. So if we're getting into this, any priest can tell you how photons yeah, work. Yeah, absolutely, right. <laughs> but but that's the thing I really appreciate. I really like when you can suss out the science behind the magic because, like we were talking about earlier, what. You know, okay, here's an example. In a lot of magic systems, pretty much all of them, even in ones that were believed to have existed in the real world, it's generally, you don't just like start snowing in the desert. You can whip up a a windstorm in the desert because it's kind of already, it's kind of a process that's already happening. You're just like nudging it along. You're you're enhancing the natural energy of what's already there. You're boosting the signal of some of a natural thing. You're not just completely upending nature entirely unless it's a really, really powerful form of magic. Like the others aren't shooting flames, right? (laughs) That would be weird. And dragons aren't launching ice. That would mean unless it's an ice dragon, but... Then that doesn't. That's, it's, it's an ice yeah, dragon. It's, yeah, it's not weird if it's an ice dragon. So we want there to be a certain sort of consistency, yes. even with magic. Yes, right. And there, you know, if you try to completely break it down scientifically, there's going to be some kind of hole. But at least on the surface, as as a, as a reader, if you will, 
You want it to make sense in your mind and you want it to be consistent within the world. You don't want sometimes for something to work one way and other times to work another way. And then it becomes completely unpredictable to you. You, you don't want to feel like the magic is being used to resolve plots randomly. Yes. Right. Yes. It that's, needs that's, to be in line with yeah. how things are flowing already. Yeah. So what I was trying to say there is like, yeah, so the glamour way I envision it, or at least I'm, I'm, I'm sort of developing this as we speak, but it's sort of how I thought about it before is that, yeah, the, the magic is manipulating the photons that are coming off of the objects, causing you to, to change how you see them rather than just saying, oh, you're seeing something that isn't there. You know, that's, that's, the basic of the basics of it, but if you're trying to understand like the inner workings of it, I think that's what we're dealing with. So there has to be, like you said, there has to be some realism, some sort of thematic resonance for it to fit. Uh, otherwise, it's just random. Otherwise, it's just resolving problems within the story. It's just Deus ex machina nonstop. You know, that's no fun. It's not a good story. So writing crutch instead of a writing tool. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's it's just not when big plot lines are advanced through randomness or inexplicable things, <laughs> inconsistencies. It's fine to be surprised when something happens, but you want to be able to look back on it and see how it makes sense. Yeah. It might be surprising for some magical thing to happen, but when you realize it's in line with everything that's been presented so far, okay, it wasn't just a trick, it was built up to, etc. Okay. Yeah, I agree with that. Well put. Well point. Well point. Um, let's have a quote from Gior and Jon Snow, which deals with this question of death versus resurrection versus what's going on with memories and, and dead people and all that. The wildlings burn their dead. We've always known that. Now I wished I'd asked them why when there were still a few around to ask. Jon Snow remembered the white rising, its eyes shining blue and the pale dead face. He knew why. He was certain. Would that Bones could talk, the old bear grumbled. This fellow could tell us much. How he died, who burned him and why, where the wildlings have gone, he sighed. Children of the forest could speak to the dead, it said, but I can't. So yeah, it doesn't seem like the children burned their dad either, by the way. Um, I don't know what I would have needed to, uh, but it would be terrifying to have little children-sized others walking around or children-sized undead. But I don't suppose that was, I don't know if that's ever been... I don't know if that question's ever been raised. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what, uh, this idea of speaking to the dead, you see that as um, literal communication or is it like, well, our ancestor spirits still speak to us because they've gone down into the net, into the werewood net and all that. Or is it maybe a little of both? The werewood net. Yeah, maybe. I think werewood net. Maybe a little of both. I, I don't know. It's a, the children of the forest could speak to the dead. It's said. So first of all, he's, you know, kind of, Supposing this, right? Well, here's a good. Let me let me give you another example while you're thinking about it. Let me let me stoke your mind a little more. For example, when they're in the cave, Bran is in in the cave for the first time. He says, "Do all the birds have singers in them?" And Bloodraven comments, "Is all yes." So all the singer, all the singers, uh, all the ravens in the cave have dead singers in them. So that's a way of communicating with the dead. Like you could definitely call that communicating with the dead. It's not probably the the it's not the framing that the old bear is imagining here but you could call that speaking with the dead it was communicating with yeah. the dead so that's one example uh, i'm obviously not saying that's the only one but if it it said that the children could speak to the dead this would be this would be an example of that i i made an analogy last week that i find myself coming back to a lot of times go for it a lot of times something can be true someone can say something and it's not false it's not a lie it's not inaccurate but it's not the whole of it either. Like if you said that people are buried when they die, 
there's not that's not untrue, but it's not complete either. Some people rot in the forest or get thrown into the sea or whatever else, right? So the children can speak to the dead can still be true, but that doesn't mean they can speak to the others or to whites. Oh, you know? okay. Mm. So um, you're not all dead. No. Maybe they can. <laughs> they can you know, speak but, to uh, their dead, not other. Yeah. Right. Mm, yeah. Interesting. Uh, yeah, so yeah. there, there are ways that they can speak to the dead, but it doesn't mean all children can speak with all dead anytime under any conservative circumstances. You know. So here's another thought too. Even if they can speak to the dead, even if they could always speak to any dead anytime, can the, how good are the dead at communicating back? Oh, right. Like, yeah. Is uh, it just like reading like, data or are they like, yeah. Humans can communicate with each other. But if I don't know how to speak Chinese, I mean, I, maybe I can kind of communicate with someone from China, but I'm not necessarily going to understand everything they say. Right. Yeah. And, and that was another thought that I, I, I had in my brain that I couldn't get out last week, but still kind of applies here too. Just what your memories are and it just without any kind of mystical or resurrection kind of variables just in real world memory can be kind of tricky. Like someone with amnesia and there's all sorts of degrees and variations of amnesia, but you know, we know that someone can like forget their own name. Mm -hmm. They can forget like their address or their job or whatever, their love, their family, but still, they still remember how to speak English. They still remember how to type or drive a car. It's not like they lost all memory of everything. So, and it's almost perplexing to us to understand why we do or don't remember some things that may, maybe how long ago we learned them or how much we use them, but like you can forget your parents yeah. with amnesia and still remember how to speak French that you learned in 11th grade or something, you know? So the dead might remember Giro Mormont. They might remember Giro Mormont was the Lord Commander, but they might not remember that they were part of the Night's Watch. Right. Or maybe they do remember that they were part of the Night's Watch. Yeah, like it's if you hold a magnet. remember how to fight with a sword, but yeah. you know, you could see all the mixes of you know, memories they might have and then add to that the instructions they might get mm -hmm. from the dead the dead speaking to them like like they might be able to mm. speak to the dead but what they might say is attack whoever you see first or <laughs> yeah go to gior mormont they, they might be able to talk to them but they might only be able to be a very generic basic instructions so well like a, like holding up a magnet to a hard drive will have devastating effects, but it won't wipe out everything probably unless it's a powerful enough magnet. So that's kind of what you're saying. Like certain things can be lost. But in that example, what I'm that example isn't isn't quite right. It's it's close because like an existence of an amnesia patient, the information is in there. Their name their name is in their brain. They're just the connections aren't there to find it, but it's in there. They can, they can, they they can maybe get back to a point where they remember it, um, as I understand amnesia, or at least certain types of amnesia, anyway. So that if you take that concept and apply it to what you were just saying, which I thought was a, a very uh, well point, you take that and have like a a dead person. Let's say you, someone who's just died. When they when you your heart stops, it's not like your brain just becomes empty, right? The, the whatever is going on in there, you know the the data storage <laughs> functions. There's data in there. It brings you back to what I was talking about last week. Yeah. Remember with them saving brains? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's just we don't know how to read it. Like yeah, you're yeah, saying, they, we, yeah. it's data, but we don't know how to read yeah, it. Yeah, it's a matter of they're trying to figure out whether we lose that data when we lose our power. 
to our brain, basically. Like oh, when yeah. we like, like, like how some computers, like how you can, if you turn it off, like they lose all of their memory. Mm. Is that the case for the human brain? Like it, like an active memory versus yes. stored memory. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm. What is how? How do our brain memory work? We don't know that. We just we just don't quite have it yet. So you could express express it as the others are able to see some of those dead memories and and maybe uh, tap into them or use them one way or the other. Yeah. It's partly. I'm not necessarily an expert, but. But I know a little bit that is your brain is kind of kind of like computers. It's a combination of of uh, uh, structure and electronics. Mm, Does that make yeah. sense? And so, like the uh, you know when your heart stops beating or the computers unplug, the electronics flowing through aren't there anymore. But the structure still exists. The problem with our brains, it's more organic, mm. and it, the structure will degrade without oxygen, uh, yeah. blood flow, etc. Like At least some, yeah. right? Yeah. And, but it doesn't happen immediately when your heart stops beating. Yeah, obviously, because After, but eventually when you're riding a corpse in a dirt, it's back. pretty much yeah. gone. But there's some time in between, and maybe you can imagine whether or not George will get into it this much. But maybe you can imagine like if someone is killed by having a sword shoved through the brain and is dead for two years, might be different than someone who dies from having a sword shoved through their heart and is dead for two days. Right? There might be different memories left, structure left in the brain. And an extreme so. example is perhaps what happens when you freeze to death, and that's the, you know maybe the most preserved we yeah. could possibly imagine in a non-technological setting. Which was the case with these particular whites that attacked Jor, right? Yes. They, they weren't bludgeoned in the skull, and they didn't die a long time ago. Right, so. right. That's yeah, there was point. no time for decomposition, or at least very little yeah, time. Uh, for yeah, and as, and as much as corpses and whites are stored, they were you know stored well. Yeah. So that's that's pretty interesting. And it's also possible that like, imagine this concept. This is probably, I think this has been done in science fiction and fantasy before where you have, imagine a, a, a fugue state, a sleeping state of a magical being. And they're subconsciously projecting dreams out into the world that sensitive people are picking up on. And they're not even necessarily aware they're doing it because it's just like a, a passive brain signal from a person in like a effective coma state, but they're still able to project that, that idea has been used in a couple different ways around the fiction. I think it's pretty pretty cool. Uh, you know, the idea of like someone's brain still working while they're not conscious of it, you know, even if they're, um, or, or basically a, a vegetable. By the way, George might get into this. Didn't John keep some dead bodies yes. down in the cellars <laughs> like to just to see what's going to happen with them or whatever? So yeah. George might get into it a little the bit. The Septon asks, he's like, you're not going to try to like talk to them, are you? He's like, can they talk? I don't know. I want to find well, out. And the guy's like, <laughs> he's like, Seven, save us. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> go, didn't, it's another uh, one of the many things that uh, John's officers were not exactly happy with his leadership. <laughs> the Septon's like, geez, what are you, what is this necromancy, man? What are you doing? <laughs> John needs Kyburn up there with him. He does. He does need Kyburn. <laughs> you know, <laughs> while we're on this topic of memory and brains and all that, something that it kind of, it doesn't bother me, bother me. It's magic. It's whatever. But I think about it a lot when, when I see a long lived creature or human or anything like that is just that our brain, our brains are not made to do that are not mm. made to live that long. We cannot store that much memory without going crazy, without losing memories, without our brains degrading, basically. We just can't, it's just uh, as far as we can tell. I mean, that's why we get things like dementia and Alzheimer, all that. Um, mm, they had that in The Good Place, I really appreciated, um, which was just, 
you can't live that long. Yeah. And so basically my point though is that the children of the forest, just the idea of living that long and then you live longer because when you're dead, you're still living if you still have some memory. Which is why it's why it requires you to transition into a different physical state because yeah. your brain, like yeah. you have to move on into yeah, like a, a new good, body. Yeah, that's a good be, point. Yeah. It like, can like, make me feel better about it because I do sometimes I'm like, there should just be all these children with dementia. <laughs> <laughs> when they're stuck. Maybe that's their magical powers that their brains can manage. Yeah, yeah. I think that is their one of their magical powers is that their brains are made to last a long time, <laughs> that they can live long, long, you know, eons. Imagine if the werewolf Another network d- was just full of dementia, it'd be like, bah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we should we should have had a little more uh, a little more selectivity on who <laughs> Yeah, I mean I got that sorry, I mentioned the good place, but that is the issue that they ran into there. Yeah. Um just not mild spoilers for far later in the show, but yeah. Yeah, they just the idea that, that you can't have eternal beings that, that that don't know what they're doing anymore. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's another thought. This is uh, again, you know, kind of tangential and and uh, kind of a just a speculative thought. But even if we could store, if you will, all the memories, it's there's a difference between like having all the information and and being able to access or process all that information. True that. Yeah. Like even computers can't process as much as they can store. Does that make sense? Yeah. Say there's still a difference between your ability to use, to, to actively use data that you have control versus F. the amount of data that you have. <laughs> no easy control F for them. <laughs> to search everything. <laughs> I, I wish, I, a lot of times wish I had like some kind of like eye function. Like I wish when I was reading a book, yeah. I wish it was like with a control F a page. Or, yeah, so I you got to read ebooks. Like, search yeah. of ice and fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah search yeah, of ice and fire. That's the great thing about, yeah, ebooks and stuff like that. <laughs> exactly. So you can do that. And, and that is, uh, you can see that that is, by the way, I think about that a lot. A lot of things that we've always sort of wanted, a lot of like dreams, fantastic powers almost. That's what technology is. Technology is bringing us things we want to fly. Okay, we can fly. We want to be able to talk to someone far away. Okay, we got phones now. We want to be able to like access data better. We got control F. Yeah, Ziz and I were just talking about um, this EMG technology where you can um, control, you know, you can control things using your wrist, basically like a little device attached to your wrist that's using your brain signals that are being sent to your hand. Uh, but it, it intercepts it along the way. It's just reading little pulses. Uh, like yeah. real, real. It seems like real magic. Like you're not doing anything but thinking, and it's pulsing to your hand, and and then you're moving something. And it's, it was this is specifically in VR, but uh, extends to regular life. Yep, it's uh, getting into that zone where magic and technology get hard to tell apart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's have the next quote on skin changers here. In truth, the legends of the skin changers are many, but the most common brought from the beyond the wall by men of the night's watch and recorded at the wall by septons and maesters of centuries past hold that the skin changers not only communicated with beasts, but could control them by having their spirits mingle. Even among the wildlings, these skin changers were feared as unnatural men who could call on animals as allies. Some tales speak of skin changers losing themselves in their beasts, and others say that the animals could speak with a human voice when a skin changer controlled them. But all the tales agree that the most common skin changers were men who controlled wolves, even direwolves, and these had a special name among the wildlings. 
Warbs. Mm-hmm. That's a great quote. There's a lot we can do with that one. And first of all, a comment from Nina pointing out that Bloodraven is perhaps uh, a, a reason for some of these legends to still be present because he was such a prominent figure in Westerosi politics, being handed the king and a lot of other things, you know, Master Whispers, Great Bastard, you know, his relationship with Shiera, stuff like that. And there's these quotes about him. He could, quote, change his face, put on the likeness of a one-eyed dog, even turn into a mist. Packs of gaunt gray wolves hunted down his foes. Carrion crows spied for him and whispered secrets in his ear. So skin changing and green seeing, that's all that is, right? But it's expressed in ways that the people observing it or hearing about it know, rather than a studious or insightful method, because to them it's rumor and the game of telephone. Uh, but it's interesting to see that relatively recent in history. That's not even something from the distant past. Um, we have the concept expressed in this quote, losing themselves in their beast. Verbeer says uh, we have that in his chapter very distinctly. Apparently the bird skin changers, that's a issue with them that they get so lost in the sky and in the idea of flying and that nothing else really compares to it. Like, yeah, you know, once you've flown, <laughs> once you can fly that high and soar, everything else is trite. <laughs> you know, the, <laughs> kind of, that's kind of how I see it. I think about the perspective of the, the maester here, mm-hmm. like he believes this, if you will. And I think that's probably because there's more evidence, more recent evidence of it for him. Yeah, so. that's true. That's very true. The recent evidence thing is a big deal. It's harder to say this is a thing from the extreme past when you have a blood raven who lived within the last hundred years. It was handed a king less than a hundred years ago. In fact, not even 60, was it? How many years ago? Uh, he was handed the king till 233-ish. So yeah, like not even 70 years ago. I suppose this could also be maybe some sort of like big picture foreshadowing that Martin is making about losing himself in a beast or something that might happen to Bran or John. Or- yeah, maybe. That's a good point. Yeah, you might get someone... Um, kind of stuck in there. Maybe, yeah, brand, maybe the most likely, but um, certainly other possibilities. Yeah, I mean, obviously people think, you know, John and Ghost, maybe of that. Yeah, especially because of his, you know, the trauma of death and resurrection, whatever that does to a person. Be we'll, like, I, we'll see. Sam's going to be, no, Sam isn't there, but Sam's going to be like, I, man, I swear, Ghost just, just said my name. <laughs> <laughs> Which, good, good segue <laughs> to... Uh, the line in here, some tales speak of skin changers losing themselves in beasts, and others say that the animals could speak with a human voice when a skin changer controlled them. Nina suggests that might be an expression of ravens, right? Ravens can talk so with a human voice, or at least with human words. And we have pretty strong evidence that Mormont's raven has been skin changed by blood raven multiple times, if not regularly, and if it's not him, it seems to be some sort of intelligence beyond just a bird in there. But yeah, I could I could see it if like ravens, if skin changers could speak through ravens, but not through wolves. Yeah, like even or, George has said that. Like yeah. people ask him, like, why don't your dragons talk? He's like, they don't really have the ability, the mouth for yeah. that. You know, it's not like their tongues. So George likes to sure to keep that that element of like logistical realism as much as possible. So yeah, like a wolf, like. Like, like, there's no way to form the right words. Right? But a raven, clearly, that's the thing that we know. That's that's real. That's realistic enough. We know that birds can have tongues. And we talked about the lyre bird last time, which is even more fascinating than just human speech. But it, it fits. Like, that's you can see where that legend came from, right? Like, it, it, you got to kind of draw a through line to that. 
I wonder if when we know that all the Ravens have singers in them, I wonder if there is any sort of direction or coordination among the Ravens to be in certain places. Mm. Like do, do the, yeah, what's the, what's the, the range singers within that? the Ravens or the Werewood Network or the Children or Blood Raven or anyone, does he have like, okay, you Ravens, you singers, you go down south, you mm. go to Winterfell, you go to the Wall. And I, I wonder if there's any attempt to, or, or, or even if it's not maybe some central uh, organization, if they just prefer to be in mm. one place or another. If some yeah. singers like the cold, and so they go up north. If some singers like the warmth, and they go down south, et cetera. Yeah, another related question. That's a very good question. I also wonder, too, like, all the birds have singers in them, but do all dead singers go into birds? Or is that just the the special ones? You know what I mean? Are some singers lost, or some yeah. singers going to wolves, or yeah. in trees? Or, exactly. Yeah. Uh, that is what I wonder. Like, is there not all, because clearly not all the children are green seers. It says they were led by their green seers. So are we talking about only the green seers that go in? But is, that's not what it says. It says all the singers, and they are the singers of the songs of Earth. So it says when it says the singers, I think of the children. But on the other hand, the singers is also something Bran refers to them as when he finds a whole room of them attached to their trees down in the caves. They're not human singers, they're children singers. So, um, so it's. Not 100% clear. Can, and can the singers exist in more places than one? Do they have a sort of omniscience between the trees and the birds? Yeah, you I, know? I think the green seers do because they can see through, their their, yeah. their sight can go so far. Brand, Blood Raven says your, your sight won't be limited to just the trees. You can just go anywhere. Now, I don't know if they can look at multiple places at once, but like they can move so quickly between one place and another maybe that it's almost the same, but but not but not literally, yeah. I expect George to give us some answers to these questions in the comments here. Let's, yeah, let me know when he <laughs> yeah, uh, so chimes in so the George, chat. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, George, weigh in here. <laughs> Stop keeping it all to yourself. <laughs> yeah, so I really like that explanation for the how they speak and how that legend grew from that from the tales of them losing themselves and, and speaking like that. So let's talk about the concept of wargs. This is where we can do a little bit more of a deep dive with some real-world history and some influences. They appear in Tolkien, and a lot of people kind of have the idea that Tolkien invented them. He didn't. They're from Norse mythology. He certainly changed them a bit. In, in Tolkien, they are evil wolves. They're not just wolves. They are evil. And these wolves can speak. They can talk. <laughs> and they can be ridden by orcs and goblins. So they talk like your Scooby-Doo voice just did? <laughs> I think they're a little more... Uh, <laughs> a little more menacing. Evil sound. Yeah. Menacing, that's the word, yes. So also... More like Shaggy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yes, like Shaggy Dog, yes. Uh, they are... So in North mythology, they, they are also ridden. There's wolf riding in, in North mythology as well. But the word warg is like the word... It comes from the word varger, and they're... I don't think they say the R... Yeah, you, it's, you, it's, you're you studying some Norwegian, yeah, so yeah, we'll go. They wouldn't say the R there. I'll go with you on this. So just Varg. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's like one of those things that we, as English speakers, we can't really say, mm. you know, some of those, like, hint it's of a, a letter. Yeah, it's like But barger. anyways. Varg. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so 10% of an R. On yeah, the yeah, it's it. like, yeah, it's, it's 10% of an R. I love <laughs> One tenth that. of an R. <laughs> <laughs> the, the specific Wargs in North mythology are Fenrir and Skull and Hati. Fenrir, of course, is the like the apocalypse wolf, basically, and Hati, Skull, and Hati are uh, those. Skull chases the sun, and Hati chases the moon. Skull is a transition, not to be confused with the you know the 
toast <laughs> is, uh, is, is translates as treachery or mockery or, or exemplifies that, whereas hati is enemy or he who hates, which I love that. That's so, so evil. He who hates. I'm like, oh, damn, don't mess with hati. So the similarity is, of course, evil used as mounts and, you know, being a wolf. So wargs, what George seems to have done, he took wargs and instead of being ridden, they're metaphorically ridden, spiritually controlled through skin changing. And the evil aspect, well, that's more of a perception. That's more of a bias. Uh, it's not an inborn thing. Obviously, using someone like Veramir as an example, there definitely are evil <laughs> skin changers, evil wargs. Then you go to John and Rob and Arya, and they're not evil. So clearly, it's uh, it's one of those things that people are just paranoid about. It's like you can control wolves. Ah, that's that's freaks me out. I, you know, Shea probably knows better than me about that specific pronunciation, but I, I do know from studying English language. If if you just think about it for a second, there's a lot of letters that we pronounce. I mean, some are like obvious and taught to specifically like long and short A, mm, I, yeah, a yeah. whatever. But like, think about the letter T. No. A lot of times <laughs> we don't actually pronounce the T. Like yeah. when yeah. I just said a lot. I didn't go a lot of times. <laughs> lot. And it's yeah. usually at the end of a word when there's a T, we don't enunciate it. Where at the beginning we do. We, we want a sip of tea, but look at where he is at. Yeah. So I, I think that's the idea of that G with the R. And but, the but yeah, but there are some things. Close the G. <laughs> but yeah, just, but just there are some things that, for example, if you're a native Chinese speaker, you're not going to say some English words the same way that we can't say yeah. a certain French word. I liked in the chat here, by the way, we have a Tara Incognita yeah. said, is it like French? Just think really hard about the R, but don't say it. Don't <laughs> not say it. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that is basically the vibe. It's implied. It's like a... It's like a uh, um, alternative medicine where you put like a tiny, like a super tiny amount. Uh, a microdose of a word? No, not a microdose. No. <laughs> it starts with an H. Uh, oh, oh man, I'm spacing out. Anyway, I never mind. But, uh, someone, will, someone will fill me in. Uh, in, in the me- but G is kind of like T. Like if you say the word Greg, you, you, don't, you definitely pronounce the G at the beginning, but the end, you might say Greg. You might not hit that G. And now imagine there was an R at the end. Like you specifically are like not closing the G. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's hard. Well point. Or good said. Yeah. So Nina adds a few other notes on the origin of the word warg. Uh, like I said, warg comes from the Old Norse var. Homeopathy, by the way. What's that? Is that the word you were looking at? Homeopathy? Yes, homeopathy. Yeah, it was a homeopathic one, dose of R. <laughs> of the letter R. <laughs> That's the word. <laughs> now you can sleep at night. Yeah. <laughs> you need a homeopathic... No, no, for sleeping at night, you need a homeopathic dose of Z. <laughs> to get your Z's. Vitamins. <laughs> that developed... That came from... Probably came from the Proto-Germanic Wargas, which may have come from the Proto-Indo-European root Verg to strangle... And the Lex Salica declared, with reference to a person banished for grave robbing, Vargas sit, that is, he shall become a warg, a wolf who would not be allowed in human society, but deserve to be killed like any animal wolf. In other words, like, robbing a grave is like an animal thing to do, because that's what animals would do. They would dig up graves and eat the bodies. So that's, uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. I, I like the origin of words. Thanks for that, Nina. And now we have a quote from... Uh, a Dance with Dragons about Bran and uh, what's going on in the cave. Let's let's check that one out. Bran ate with Summer and his pack as a wolf. 
As a raven, he flew with the murder, circling the hills at sunset, watching for foes, feeling the icy touch of the air. As Hodor, he explored the caves. He found chambers full of bones, shafts that plunged deep into the earth, a place where the skeletons of gigantic bats hung upside down from the ceiling. He even crossed the slender stone bridge that arched over the abyss and discovered more passages and chambers on the far side. One was full of singers and thrown like Brendan in nests of weirwood roots that wove under and through and around their bodies. Most of them looked dead to him, but as he crossed in front of them, their eyes would open and follow the light of his torch. One of them opened and closed a wrinkled mouth as if he were trying to speak. Hodor, Bran said to him, he felt the real Hodor stir down in his pit. Ooh, yeah, so this is a good example. This is our best example of taking multiple forms in a short span, although it's not a short span. It's implied that a lot of time is passing in between these things. This is like a montage almost. I just want to say how awesomely written that <laughs> passage was. Right? It, like, it's it's so creepy and so visual and and and... On top of it, there's just a little hint of humor there when he says Hodor, you yeah. know, like it's kind of creepy, the idea that he's taken over Hodor. It was such a revealing, I don't know, that whole passage is really great. It is so good. Yeah, Brand's cave chapters are just immensely fun and creepy and awesome. And you can c- keep coming back to them and find new things, which is basically true for all of the Song of Ice and Fire. But this one is even, it was perhaps among the most evocative because of all the mystery. Uh, yeah, and those tunnels, like deep into the earth, we talked about that. Like imagine, think about that with what we were just saying about the possibility of these caves going super deep into the earth or maybe even, you know, across continents or what have you. Who knows what's possible? Maybe under the wall. Yeah, well, almost certainly under mm-hmm. the wall. Yeah, that's that's a good point. We hear about that with Gendel and Gorn and ancient giants and children and all that. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But also, but but thinking of this from a human perspective, we just talked about how being inside another being and feeling its way of existing and jiving with that, growing into that, yeah, jiving, jacking, huck, jucking and jiving inside a dire wolf and a raven, do a little raven dance. You know. <laughs> it's funny to me for some reason. <laughs> Talk about losing your humanity or losing your child, childosity, losing going your from religion. just one different animal to another and just all these short spans of times and, and then into a person as well. So for Bran, it's even more because he's going inside another human talk about being just spreading yourself thin, right? Like from a human perspective, it feels like that would be like lose your, losing your sense of self, like talking about just the bird skin changers. Well, this seems like this would have a similar effect. I don't know. Uh, maybe if you're really tough-minded, maybe it'd be different, but this is a child, right? One, one more thing that passage is doing is showing us Brand's development, his powers. Yeah. Know? It's just smoothly doing these fantastic things. Yeah, like it's, no, it's nothing for him to go into Hodor now. Yeah, you're right. And it's nothing for him to go into the tree when they, when he had his, his great, um, awakening ceremony, when they gave him the, what might be Jojen paste or whatever is commonly referred to as possibly Jojen paste. That's, he just, it's like, instead of going into the bird, think about the tree back at Winterfell. And he's like, okay. And then it just happens. Like there's no like trial and error. He's just so good at it. He's so talented. And he was given this fluid that helps him that, facilitates this transfer of spirit or whatever you want to call it. The mechanism is hard to put into words, but it's really neat. It's really cool. And this is uh, something to keep in mind as we continue because this is, yeah, this is, this is how the children existed. And it's like they developed all this. And so passing it on to humans, well, it has to take on a human perspective. It's no longer possessed by beings that live hundreds of years that don't have uh, a reason to advance beyond the stone age. It don't have a reason to 
yeah, do do a lot of the things that humans do. So it's a a magical essence developed by one race for thousands of years and then given over to humans who use it differently, who have different attitudes, different loves and hates and understandings. Yet there is overlap here. And, and of course, with the others, there's maybe a common enemy. All right, let's talk about more specifically old gods, werewoods, heart trees, some stuff along those lines. Of course, we've discussed these things elsewhere as well. So we're, we're going to do our best not to overlap, try to approach this from a different angle. And let's start off with another quote. All right. The gods the children worshipped were the nameless ones that would one day become the gods of the first men, the innumerable gods of the streams and forests and stones. It was the children who carved the werewoods with faces, perhaps to give eyes to their gods so that they might watch their worshippers at their devotions. Others, with little evidence, claimed that the green seers, the wise men of the children, were able to see through the eyes of the carved werewoods. The supposed proof is the fact that the first men themselves believed this. It was their fear of the werewoods spying upon them that drove them to cut down many of the carved trees and werewood groves to deny the children such an advantage. Not the only method that the face uh, first men believed the children were spying on them, right? We talked about that a little bit at the beginning, and they were right. Because not only can they see through the eyes of the trees, and not only can they like look down stealthily from the branches, but uh, they can see through time. So like, yeah, they can be watching you if they want to be watching you. <laughs> really, you really, I don't know if you can like actually stop them. <laughs> they can pretty much spy on you no matter what. An exception to so much of all this, like a, an outlier in a number of ways is the Isle of Faces. We're going to treat that a little bit separately. We're going to kind of come back to that a little later. But one of the issues that the Isle of Faces raises is the notion of sacrifice because obviously this notion is raised elsewhere also. But one of the great spells done at the Isle of Faces, supposedly by legend, involved large amounts of sacrifice and the pact supposedly uh, involved lots of carving of new faces on new werewoods or on werewoods that didn't have faces and all sorts of really compelling, interesting, but quite mysterious and unknown events in the past. So it's a good springboard, like so many of these topics are, to talk about blood sacrifice. Now, first, I want to make a, make sure we have a distinction and understanding of the difference between blood sacrifice and human sacrifice, because sometimes they're lumped together and they're not always the same. Blood sacrifice, like in history, in real world, is generally like letting some of your blood out, like slicing yourself open, letting some blood out, sealing it back up, or maybe from an animal. Whereas human sacrifice is what we usually think of, where you just you actually kill the whole person. Yeah. Uh, you mean all this time I've been... Yeah, you've been doing yeah, it wrong, anyway, man. Ahead. You've been doing it wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Nina reminds us that Yandel mentions the practice of blood sacrifice to the old gods persisted as recently as five centuries ago. That's human sacrifice, because we're talking about putting entrails in the trees and killing people and, and cutting them apart and hanging them, you know, giving them to the tree. So that's, that's full-blown human sacrifice. So this is where... The, the terminology can get a little uh, loose. So you got to just make sure you're keeping track of which is which. I think generally in A Song of Ice and Fire, when they say blood sacrifice, they mean human sacrifice. But be aware that that's not always how it is. Talking about that, we talk about human sacrifice in, in the real world. Now, the idea that it's gone in A Song of Ice and Fire is, is we should be skeptical of. It's probably still going on, especially because it's not that long gone in our world. Animal sacrifice still happens, right? <laughs> uh, 
it was blood, blood and human sacrifices were so common that the Eucharist, the so-called blood of Christ, that was a partly developed to push back against. It was explicitly not real blood. They're like, this is kind of a way to move beyond having real blood in these ceremonies, which had been present for thousands of years in a variety of human cultures. Another example of the end of human sacrifice in burials was in China. Y'all are probably familiar with terracotta warriors, right? You've maybe at least heard of them. The terracotta, before the terracotta warriors, human living people were buried with these emperors and kings. So this was actually not just like an amazing archaeological uh, find and, and existent thing, but it was also it also marks the end of human burial sacrifice in China. So that's, that, that's the lesser known aspect of it. And Sean, you made a note here too. There's, it's not that, like there's still people like killing themselves for cults, like uh, not that long yeah. ago and in current times. I mean... Like some bigger ones, like you know, Jim Jones is a fairly well known example, and I, I even that's pushing fifty years now, I think. But but anyway, cults are still around, and death, sacrifice, suicide is part of it, even in modern times. Which is, I, I the idea that you wouldn't think it was around thousands of years ago, when now like pretty much every culture frowns on that at least, you know, yeah, and it still springs up here and there, so. I'm not sure if some of y'all caught this under the radar connection here, but I earlier used the phrase drink the Kool-Aid and you just mentioned Jim Jones. That's where that phrase came from. The drink the Kool-Aid that originated with Jim Jones cult because the people that killed themselves under his tutelage drank poisoned Kool-Aid. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, just for example, uh, we already mentioned China. Evidence that happened as far back as 25,000 years ago. So it's not just something that happened in ancient times. It's happened in ancient, ancient times. Egypt, of course, they had burial sacrifices and other ones. Rome, they had burial sacrifices. Uh, Greece, Cahokia, which is near St. Louis. There's evidence of human sacrifice as recently as 1200 AD. So if you live near St. Louis, there was human sacrifice happening about 900 years ago near you. Inca practiced child sacrifice. Possibly the Punic cultures did as well. Although there's some skepticism that that was Roman propaganda. The Maya had a lot of sacrifice. Hawaiian cultures had human sacrifice possibly as recently as the 19th century. But that could also be white people propaganda against the natives. Viking cultures, plenty of human sacrifice there, uh, especially as part of burials. Hindu women. This is a real, this is a tragic one. Uh, it was, there's a long tradition of Hindu women jumping on the funeral pyres of their husbands. This became such a problem that it was outlawed in the 19th century, it was outlawed because you'd be saying, well, why can't these women, if they want to die, why can't they? Because they were encouraged to. They were told they were supposed to. Like it was... Pressured into it. They weren't necessarily choosing of their own volition. Exactly. So that's not good. They referenced that in the office. Oh, really? Scott, when he's at the Diwali celebration, he's talking to Kelly's parents and he's like, so is this the kind of thing where if he dies, you have to throw yourself on a pyre? And she like looks at him. She stares at him like, you (laughs) jerk. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, he was referring to a real world Yeah, he world actually thing, knew yeah. about a real world thing. <laughs> now, here's another really sad, scary one. In Tanzania, even in modern times, there's superstitions on albino people that, that, that killing albino people and taking like their blood or their body parts can have benefits, which is like, geez, man. Oh, apparently they didn't drink Kool-Aid. Oh, they is that drank, just a myth? They drank a brand called Flavor Aid. Oh, they drank poison yeah. Flavor Aid. Flavor Aid is so mad. Uh, I know. They're like what? <laughs> 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 
Yeah, it could have been us all this time. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, they got marketing stolen from them by Kool Aid. Pretty bad. (laughs) I don't know that they mind that. Yeah, they might not. (laughs) The drink associated with death cults. The official drink. (laughs) Publicity is good publicity. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so and as I said, animal sacrifice that still happens all over the world now. Like, just I couldn't possibly begin to list all those. I didn't bother to look actually because I'm. I'm aware that it's still very common. Yeah, the thing like, and on my next door app, where someone was sacrificing an, a, a, a goats or something, yeah, and like people, people kept finding goat heads. <laughs> like it's the whole thing here, and this is like suburban, like Atlanta, <laughs> Georgia. Like it was very weird, but it's just like people said, yeah, it's a real thing that there are religions where they sacrifice. Goats, yeah, people think but of it as But normally they dispose of it properly when it's done in a religious yeah, you, way. You don't because, throw a, you, know, you don't just get rid of it. Toss a headless goat in the in the river. Yeah, you don't normally do that. Like in when, Greece, when they would sacrifice an animal like that, they would eat yeah. most of it. Like <laughs> they, would, yeah. they would still eat it. Like it wasn't, it was weird and gross, but it's not that different functionally from just killing an animal and eating it. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, is very normal. Let's discuss a few questions that people offered here, and then we'll move on to a fun anecdote of influence on the nature of werewolves, children, and all that from a series that George is influenced by. Starting off, we have AU055 from New Zealand asking, were humans genetically modified with children slash dragon DNA? I, I think with dragon DNA, yes, for the Targaryens and perhaps other Valyrian dragon lord uh, families. And that's why we theorize that some sort of magic uh, was used in a similar way to maybe get that genetics into humans or ch- uh, children. Yeah, so like children DNA magicked into people. If they can't, you know, get it through sexual reproduction, perhaps magic is the uh, the method that was used to cross that bridge, <laughs> for lack of a better term. <laughs> Catherine Endicott says, does anyone else in Westeros know that Bloodraven is a three-eyed crow or is he just believed to be dead? Yeah, he's just believed to be dead. I don't think there's anyone else that Do you knows. think that Aemon had any idea? Uh, no. I don't, I don't think, think he so. Did, but if, if anyone did, I think the only person that would have known is Aemon. Yeah, that's a, possible, that's a possibility. But I'm not sure how does he Does anyone would, else know that there is a three-eyed crow? Is that entity something that anyone is even aware exists? No, so, I mean, no, I think it would, yeah, it would be a matter of but them, if they knew it, it exists, they would know it was, know it was Bright Blood Raven. Possibly yeah. Euron. There's theories uh, that Euron uh, was yeah. visited by yeah, the Three-Eyed yeah. Crow early on. I guess anyone know. that Bran talked to his dreams about. Yeah, so, but... Quaith, maybe? Maester Lewin before. Well, Melisandre has the ability to look into... Remember, she had that moment where she looked into flames and she saw... Bran and Bloodraven. She didn't know what they were, but she saw a boy with a wolf's yeah. head and, and a man with a thousand eyes in one, <laughs> which is pretty clear. <laughs> it's like, okay, we knew who that is. And, uh, but she didn't reckon, she didn't know what the deal was. She's like, oh, that must be servants of the great other. So, which spawned a whole lot of theories about how Bloodraven is but, evil. <laughs> but for example, or helped spawn those. did Osha know about Bran's dreams? Ah, uh, yeah. I that's a in which case a, I would Osha guess no. and Rickon, if they knew, then they would know that a three eyed crow exists. Yeah, they wouldn't necessarily know that he's once was the Lord Commander. No, yeah, they, they wouldn't know that. They wouldn't yeah. know even who Blood Raven was. Likely, like probably Osha and, and Rickon they wouldn't even know who those people were. Yeah, um, yeah. Even if they it had any meaning, but uh, 
they probably know about the dream. I mean, I, don't, I think Bran would have brought it up. Yeah, maybe. Like, um, he de- they definitely talked about the dream, like with Jojen and Mira. Like, yeah. Jo- oh, like, that's, that's a good example. Around. Jojen's seen the three-eyed crow. Yeah. That's oh. for sure. Yeah, it was in his dreams, too. That, uh, and he would probably know who Blood Raven is. He would have, like, learned yeah, at least, yeah, Jojen He might have, yes. He would be more likely to know the history, yes, totally. Because his father is the one that sent him to, to Bran. He's like, oh, you're having three-eyed crow dreams? Go to Winterfell. <laughs> so, And his father is old enough to maybe know who Blood Raven is. Yep, yep. Uh, here's a question from Steve Van Prien, a.k.a. Stefan the Studious. I came across the one weirwood tree growing right next to the wall in a branch chapter at the Night Fort. I remember you mentioned in a stream once that no weirwoods grew near the wall, and this stuck out to me. It's also the youngest of the trees I can recall. Just wondering what you guys think on the subject. Okay, first of all, yeah, it's the youngest of the trees we know of, too, with the possible exception of the one that Brienne finds in the Cracklaw Point that she buries... Uh, which he sort of makes a blood sacrifice to by burying, mm-hmm. <laughs> burying uh, Shagwell beneath it <laughs> and killing two other people nearby. So it was a little under the radar uh, old God's business going on there. But yeah, the, the thing with the, ra- the with the weirwood at the Night Fort is funky because yeah, it's the only one that we know of that's relatively near besides because the, the Grove of Nine that they go to uh, say their vows and then where they find one one, that's a good couple miles. So it's not like far but it isn't super close either. The weird thing about the one at the night fort is it's just growing out of the kitchen. This is gr- just burst through the floor, you know? It's, so it's hard to imagine, like, some theories are like, well, maybe it takes, like, the death of someone or, like, a child of the forest is buried and they become a tree. Uh, but that doesn't really work because what we're told is green seers are married to existing trees. And if there's already a green seer in that tree, are they, like one-on-one to an existing one-on-one or you see how it kind I of mean, kind of gets a little funky there yeah i mean i i, I guess i always figured, I, I kind of always assumed there had to be multiple green seers to a tree just based on the numbers of it all it might be well um, so many of them were cut down so yeah maybe who knows how many there used to be but my other question is um in terms of you, you might be you might think there is something holding them back because there hasn't been a reforestation effort from the first men you would think that with the old gods, you know, once like let the North has their peace, you would think that they would be like, oh, well, let's start regrowing our trees that the Andals cut down. Like, yeah. I, it doesn't make sense that they wouldn't try to do that. What's the way? Yeah, because we know that humans have tried that. We know from the Vale chapters, they tried to plant werewoods there and yeah. they wouldn't take. So we know that they can, that, that mechanism exists. They yeah. must be like acorns or something. That yeah. They can, <laughs> yeah. I mean, see, yeah, they're, wait, werewood acorns are a thing. So yeah, the idea that, yeah, I guess there's, there's just been, there's been no brand the planter. <laughs> that might be part of brand the rebuilding. That's something we talk. We're going to talk about in our in our brand and the builder episode that keeps taking me a while to finish. Okay. Uh, how brand the builder maybe is uh, bookended by brand the rebuilder. Something we talked about in the TV show as well a little bit. We'll greatly expand on it. We're not going to use the TV show as an example, but it does at least hearken to a similar idea. Yeah. So that's that's what I have to say on that. It's it's a little odd. It might just be a natural growing tree there, but it certainly um, is very evocative and, and curious. But. Uh, <laughs> Solid answers are hard to come by on that one. Miss Cat says, I would argue that werewoods are an example of megaflora, trees that can get individually quite large and are all connected to one another in a network. In this case, yeah, are they independent trees or are all they a part of one tree? It's not clear. They're not literally linked by the root systems because we're talking about continent-wide thing. And even these fancy, amazing root systems on Earth don't go that far. They stay within a relatively contained region. But there are examples of 
what's called clonal colonies. For example, I think you mentioned this, Sean, there's aspen trees. I'll, let you, I'll, I'll throw this over to you in a second. But for example, aspen trees, uh, they clone themselves. They just That's why they all look the same. And in these even rows is part of they They share root systems, but they also just reproduce not through plant sex, but through just cloning themselves. So it's like an exact copy of itself. And it just reproduces itself over and over. And well, next thing you know, there's a whole lot of them around and it's pretty cool. Yeah, there are definitely uh, a lot of trees that are on the surface. It looks like a trunk is growing up from the ground, but underneath there's a vast root network and it's all trunks coming up from the same, you know, it might be hard to I mean, I think science just call it all just one organism. It's all just one big organism. And it like, they're, they're like massive. They're like the size of like football fields or whatever. Um, mm. And they're really all just one tree, just different trunks coming up out of the ground that are all interconnected to each other. What's even more amazing to me than that, or more interesting and, and relatively new information, is that scientists are learning now that trees... <sighs> Like a tree like that that's sort of connected underground, even if they weren't, and there are some examples of ones that are like maybe sort of semi-connected that aren't all the actual same root system or whatever, but they have found that trees of different species underground have their root systems connected through, I, I, I had heard it called a mycelial network at one point, but I did a little more research and I think it's actually a mycorrhizal network. Maybe they're similar or maybe even the same thing. But the idea is that the trees, the plants, the bacteria, the fungus, all of them underneath the, in the root system, underneath the forest ground, they're coordinating the, the disbursement of, of minerals and nutrients. It's like a marketplace and light. sort of, right? Yeah. But like yeah, without it's, currency. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable that the, the trees have, you know, it, it's kind of hokey to think that they have some sort of like emotional or active thought. It, it, as far as anyone can tell, it's just sort of like evolutionary responses to the environment, you know. But trees will actually like send... And they know for sure they they've like tracked like the carbon molecules and like dyed water gets removed from one tree, goes down into the roots through the fungus into the different roots of a different tree, mm. and they like disperse to like if a tree becomes damaged, loses a branch, or even gets chopped down or falls down, and it's just a stump. A lot of tree stumps in a forest are alive and even thriving because all the fauna around it are sending it extra nutrients. Mm. They control like how many leaves grow like more or less to let more or less light come through to the lower to younger saplings coming up. Like it's wow. the, it's an amazing coordination and distribution of nutrients, water and light that are happening through fungus and bacteria and tree roots underneath the ground. It's it's like it's it's only maybe in the past generation of science that they've learned this even. That's and amazing. they're still like trying to fully figure it out. I, I first saw it on a, on a documentary and then I saw it on Star Trek. And the documentary <laughs> I saw, like the people talking about, they were kind of like hippies. They were like scientists, but they were all like yeah. hippie sort of sounding <laughs> and I didn't fully buy into it. Then I saw it another documentary and then it was on the Cosmos, the, the new season of Cosmos. I was like, this is, and I started reading a Wikipedia article about it. It's, <laughs> it's an amazing wow. sort of new scientific discovery they've made about how trees 
interact with each other under the yeah. ground. Well, you got to wonder if George is reading some of that stuff and learning. Maybe he'll incorporate some of that, like, we'll like some fungus halfway. Or, Even, by the way, reforestation fungus. efforts and lumberjacks, they're using this because they've realized that like, uh, different trees are better at getting and receiving different nutrients. And so oh, like, like control systems. Uh, uh, oh. uh, like a, a section of forest. You know, now that we do sort of rotate around they chop the pine trees down, plant new ones and go in this rotation and come back years later. They realize that if it's all pine trees, they don't grow as well, as fast or as healthy as if it's pine trees and oak trees. And, you know, if they have, it's better to have some diversity, yeah. different species, right. They, they all grow with more efficiency and health and everything. So yeah, they like, they do, they occupy different niches within the, the system and all that. And then those niches uh, affect other niches. And yeah, that's so co- super cool. It's really, uh, it really speaks to this concept of collective intelligence, collective uh, existence that reflects the the world of the ch- that the children lived in before mankind came in. And uh, with that, keeping in mind, as mentioned last time, our, what we think about death and uh, the sanctity of life is different in other species, specifically the children here, but in all species, really, I suppose. And that's when we get, uh, combining that as well with the no- notion of talking to the dead, speaking to the dead, let's speak on the influence of the novels Ender's Game, Speaker for the Dead, Xenocide, which were written in the early 80s and were an influence on George R. Martin. George uh, at one point wrote a prologue to a book that he was publishing or to a a recurring um, periodical about things that happened at the Hugo Awards. And he wrote a a big piece about Orskin Scott Card And then it was never published because that publication died before he published it. So you can find it on his website. And of course, this is long before the crappy stuff with Orson Scott Card came out, which I am going to address in a moment because it actually is relevant here. But starting off with just the the work only, just the books before we talk about the author, in the series Speaker for the Dead, uh, spoilers, by the way, (laughs) incoming, (laughs) there's there's a race called the Pecaninos or the Pecaninos, I don't know how to pronounce it. And there's guys like Bark Dancer, Rooter, and Leaf Leaf Eater, who sound kind of similar to Leaf and Snowy Locks and Scales and terms like Wood Dancer. They have a first, second, and third life. Sound familiar, right? And, And skin changers have a second life within their animal. In this case, the third life is as a tree. (laughs) You go from walking and talking to a tree. And... The, in order to go from second life to third life, you have to be ritually murdered. <laughs> so, <laughs> and the trees have memories of past life and they can communicate with each other. And when humans came to this, to this planet, they started cutting down these trees and it was, it was really bad. Mm-hmm. And at one point, a human is killed to be made into a tree and they're like, holy crap, you murdered one of our people. And they thought they were doing this, this greatest, most sacred thing for this person. They were like, oh, no, this, we've honored you greatly. And that's when it comes into... Real quick, Aziz. Yeah. This is an Orson Scott card book? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, it's after it. It takes place way after Ender's Game, but it's it's uh, involves the same characters. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's part of that series of books. Yeah. So Xenocide involves that's Xenocide is genocide, but for aliens. So Xenocide refers to the, this this kind of conflict that developed between humanity and the Pecaninos. Um, there's the, the language. <laughs> In uh, the Ender's Game world, you may remember this is the, is called Starlight Common, which is shortened to Stark. <laughs> so the language in Ender's Game is called Stark. <laughs> Here's another kicker: the Ender's Game movie script was originally set 
to be made in the early 2000s. It didn't actually get made till 2013, as a lot of you may remember. But do you know who was originally tapped to write the script for Ender's Game? You might be thinking George R. R. Martin, but no, not George R. R. Martin, but Dan and Dave. <laughs> I kid you mm. not. Dan and Dave were going to write Ender's Game movie, and it just didn't happen. And instead, they did Game of Thrones. Uh, I don't know about instead. Would have, would have, I don't know if they would have done that much worse. <laughs> <laughs> So, Orson Scott Card has very bad views on gay marriage. Um, he, and I don't mean like he has bad opinions, just bad opinions. This guy joined the board of directors of NORML, which was the National Organization Marriage League, I forget what it stands for, but they were like, they raised huge amounts of money to fight. Yeah, <laughs> they raised huge amounts of money to fight uh, gay marriage laws all around the country and in, in every state. And then they actually succeeded in California temporarily. Of course, it's certainly legal there now. But at the time, they actually delayed the legality of, of it for a couple of years. So this isn't a guy who just with an opinion. Like he put time and effort into this, stopping gay folk from getting married. So uh, he's a Mormon. And he's not one of those guys that believed that being gay is a choice. He actually, in his one of his books, wrote it as, as an inborn trait. So at least he's got that part right. But his hatred of modern sexuality and and basically guys a prude. Let's put it that way. He's got that a lot of Mormons are this way. I'm not no shade on Mormons, but like be honest, a lot of Mormons are kind of prudish about anything sexual. So here is Orson Scott Card's take on <laughs> the Game of Thrones TV show. I've now watched the first two episodes of HBO's adaptation of George R. R. Martin's glorious epic fantasy, A Game of Thrones, and I must confess to disappointment bordering on disgust. <laughs> they poured so much money into a lavish production and engaged the services of so many talented actors that it's deplorable that they're working with a script that is so very, very bad. <laughs> what you notice first is the amount of pointless nudity. Now, it <clears throat> happens that in the coarse medieval world of Martin's novels, there is a casual attitude towards sex. But Martin never, not once, uses sex pornographically. It's not described in detail, and it is always used as part of character revelation, relationship building, or plot complication. You don't dwell on it. You know that it happened, and you move forward in the story. But the screenwriters, perhaps compensating for their utter inability to find a filmic replacement for the deep penetration <laughs> viewpoint of Martin's writing, have taken any excuse for nudity and sex and blown it up into full-fledged, if soft-core, porn. <laughs> Moments that are fleeting or merely referred to in passing in the book are inflated into scenes that stop the story cold. Where Martin gave us a glimpse, these writers call for a lingering jiggling close-up. Lingering jiggling. <laughs> <laughs> the result is that the actors and George R. R. Martin are demeaned and diminished. Combine that with the screenwriter's aforesaid incompetence at creating character and relationship in a script. And what you have is a deeply ruined adaptation. And yet, I watched these installments immediately after having reread or rather listened to the book. And I must say that I loved the designer's visualization of the scenery and structures in the book. The casting is excellent. 
except for the Dothraki king, Drogo, who looks like a steroid using weightlifter rather than a hard-bodied horseman. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm happy to replace my own images with theirs. Also, the title sequence has an animated map of the Seven Kingdoms that is breathtaking to a cardophile like me. So I'm going to TiVo the rest of the series and then fast forward through the stupid, utterly unsexy news scenes as I did with Cara DiGiorgio's judging on American Idol. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> so I, left I guess he blocked about American Idol too. Yeah. Uh, but wouldn't it have been nice if HBO had presented an adult version of this masterpiece of fantasy <laughs> literature instead of giving us the lonely 14-year-old boys version? <laughs> season one, remember? That was just the first two episodes. First two episodes. (laughs) So I sort of agree with some of his complaints there, but like only like to degrees, like let's like a homeopathic amount of his anger. (laughs) That was Orson Scott Card for people in the chat asking this. Yeah, so you can really see his his just hatred of sexuality in there. Like, obviously, like a lot of us agree that they did go too far. He loves hard-bodied horsemen. But he does love hard-bodied horsemen and he really hates uh, Kara... DeGuardia's judging on American Idol. That was such a random... I wish he shared more of the imagery in his mind of hard-bodied horsemen. Yeah. So that's just like, oh man, like, what? how do you really feel, Orson? But like, imagine what he thought of future seasons if he kept watching, you know? Like, he must have really had some... I kind of want to see what he wrote about season eight or whatever. (laughs) Which wouldn't have had as much sexuality, so maybe he wouldn't have hated it as much. I don't know. Anyway, so that's that's pretty funny, huh? He's just like uh, coming down heavy there. I can't believe you wanted me to read that whole quote. I know. I, I, almost, I, I can't believe how well you read it. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoy channeling his childness. <laughs> yeah. Clearly the guy, you know, is an interesting take there, to put it mildly. But he was also like really aggressive. He's like a lot of stereotypical like creators who just will not bend even a little on their adaptation. He's like, no, if you're changing this about my story, it's not getting made. So that's part of why it took so long to get made. And then by the time it did get made, all his gay marriage stuff was out in the world. And so it really hurt the movie. Apparently, it wasn't that great of a movie anyway. But it is a pretty good... I I personally think the book's a little overrated. I really liked Speaker for the Dead and and, um, Xenocide, which I read you know, before any of this stuff even happened. But I didn't like it enough to read the last book. So I'll say that much. <laughs> so I did kind of quit it. It was a little too... Was, yeah, anyway, you, it, you guys can make your own opinions on it if you really... What's that? You hit it, then quit it? I, yeah, I did hit it and quit it, yeah. <laughs> when was Ender's Game and the follow-up books, when were they written? The 80s, early 80s. Like he won um, okay. he won back-to-back Hugos, I think, which had... Like, so he was quite an accomplishment. So that's part of why he was like bursting on. He's also really similar age to George. Like he's like a few years younger than George. So they're like, they kind of came up at the same time. Like George was a little bit ahead yeah. of him. But uh, yeah, anyway. So that's, that's. Yeah. I think I read Ender's Game around 2000. Okay. And and I liked it, but not enough to read the further books. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was a little bit, over, I thought it was good, but kind of overrated. Like I, I couldn't, I didn't quite grasp why it was Hugo material. But you know. Other people, other your mileage may vary. There's a character in Ender's Game named Hot Soup, by the way, which might be Hot Pie, uh, the influence on Hot Pie. <laughs> Would you rather have Hot Pie or Hot Soup? Hot Soup, probably. Oh, uh, me too, I think. Unless it's like a, unless you mean pizza pie. Yeah, or like a pot pie. I'm like, because that's kind of like both. It's like the combination. <laughs> <laughs> it's like pie and soup. Also, another little comparison while we're talking about other properties here as we wind down this episode. 
Compare all those dreamers in one room. You know how Bran passes that room and the, like the singer, the eye follows his torch and one of them opens their mouth and, you know, talks wordlessly. Like, think about that like the Matrix, you know, like people are plugged into their own little pod, just dreaming away, you know, because there he says they're dreaming. Like the, all the dreamers, are, that's what he's calling them, right? Dreamers and singers. And uh, you mentioned, um, you mentioned Black Mirror. Yeah, Black Mirror. Yeah, yeah the, the, I feel like a lot of Black Mirror episodes kind of, some of them are a little too Luddite for 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 how I view the world, but especially the some of the more positive ones that they spin the idea of the matrix more positively, you know. Like rather than like the whole world being like subdued into pods where we're just generating electricity for robots, or whatever. What about the idea that as we approach death, we get to like live more lively lives in our minds with each other, connected through the internet and, you know, VR and stuff like that is a much more like a positive technology. Yeah, right on. Yeah. Now, another property, see, George himself has written on this concept even before any of these things existed. So obviously before Black Mirror, obviously before The Matrix, but also before Ender's Game, uh, he not only wrote And Seven Times Never Kill Man, which we'll talk about at another time, but in 1975, George R. R. Martin won the Hugo Award for Best Novella for A Song for Leah. The two main characters in A Song for Leah are Rob and Liana, and Rob is with two Bs, so it's definitely the same names. There's not much similarity besides these names to, the, to those characters. In fact, there's like no, no similarity at all besides the names. They're studying an alien life form called the Grishka. The Grishka lives on this other planet. They go to this planet to study it. This is in the Thousand Worlds uh, setting of George R. R. Martin, so it's far-flung future. Spaceships are normal. The Grishka, it really sounds like something out of Star Wars, but this is actually prior to Star Wars existing, so clearly that can't be the case. The, the, this is uh, not spoilery. This is all introduced like within the first like few pages, just describing... This would be like the Wikipedia description, basically. People allow themselves to be infected by this Grishka, and about 10 years later, the infection is complete, and then they go join the Grishka permanently. They exist in a permanent state of bliss with a total banishment of loneliness. So that's a little more like the, the good side. It's not like... They're being fed on for eternity and used to do evil. That's the Matrix angle. This is more like, no, they're just permanently good. You know, it's a Stone Age tech, Stone Age culture. So it's kind of like the, the, the children. They, they metamorph, metamorphosed into this ability to live sort of forever in this Werewood network. With their magic, they never needed to develop technology and it stayed in the Stone Age. So that's exactly what happens here. The Grishka, the people that worship the Grishka, they have been in a technological, they're not, they haven't changed in thousands of years. It's been Stone Age for thousands of years. So that's, it's pretty cool, huh? So, uh, since that one won the Hugo, I highly recommend it. It is a very good story. It's also very sad because... What, what's it published in? Do you know? It's in one of the Dream Songs collections, I believe. George published, there's two Dream Songs collections, Dream Songs 1 and Dream Songs 2. I think it's in the second one, but you'd want to look that up for sure. Uh, there, Those are collections of all his short stories. And they're, they're really good. Another collection of his is the Tough Voyaging Stories, and one of those is called Guardians. Now, I'm not going to talk about what happens in that one, because unlike A Song for Leah, explaining the connections to this would spoil the story. So you're going to want to check that one out on your own. If you like Tough Voyaging, it's pretty cool that you could probably read all of Tough Voyaging in a couple, you know, in a few sittings. It's just like five or six short stories. And uh, there's definitely a really fascinating example of collective intelligence and, and what we would probably call magic, but in a technological setting. So it's pretty cool. Let's see, a couple of uh, closing things here. Um, 
You know, another idea just from science, I probably should have mentioned this earlier, but one of the many rabbit holes I've described going down into is thinking about like evolution and going back to the very early evolution, like single-celled organisms on on Earth. Single-celled organisms, for the most part, the evolution happened in, in a great part because of kind of like what you were describing with those forests working together is because of single-celled organisms working together and evolving into multi-cell organisms. And basically, quote, experiments have shown that a group of microbes that secretes useful molecules that all members of the group can benefit from can grow faster than groups that do not. So this is just the most fundamental building blocks of life. They have to work together. They have to like a communal existence. That's ideal. That's what worked <laughs> in the great, you know, uh, catalyst environment, the great uh, melting pot of life on Earth. And billions of years ago, what worked was working together. That's what got them out of the soup of, of uh, single-celled life was to work together. So let that be a lesson to us all. <laughs> working together, even, even the plants and trees are doing it. Even the single-cell organisms are doing it. So, you know... I think uh, it's pretty pretty cool to think about, pretty explicit. I wanted to talk about the deep ones and the third race stuff that we raised, but we've uh, we're probably a good spot to leave it off for today. So, still no art of you and Sean. We'll get there eventually. (laughs) (laughs) Well, next week we are going to really much get into the coming of the third of the first men, which really that's more appropriate for this because it's that's when it was discovered. So that kind of that works. That fits. Let's see. Do we have any other questions? It looks like no. I think we handled all the questions that we had. So, Sean, do you have any uh, any last thoughts here? Any final oh, words? Any final thoughts, Sean? Right, cool. Well, folks, <laughs> for next time, we're going to have Elio Garcia. What's that? I'm threatening him. Yeah, Shay's threatening you, Sean. Uh, uh, <laughs> can I say them next week? <laughs> <laughs> so if you have questions about coming of the first men, questions for Elio, questions about any of the stuff that we've just discussed, other influences you want to mention, definitely send them to us. It would be awfully off of me to talk about how much of a communal effort this is on on the microbial level even and then not take y'all's feedback but that's something we do regularly anyway just want to make sure y'all know so uh thanks everyone for coming if you were here live we really appreciate your presence and you're joining the chat i appreciate sean's presence here today because Sean has COVID. Yes, I completely forgot to mention yeah. that at the beginning because you just, just seem so normal. Along. He's fine. No, it seems it seems like you're not very sick. You're just positive. Are you? Do you have any symptoms? I'm still. I still have a little bit of a cough, a little bit of a headache, tightness in the mm-hmm. chest. It's. I'm, I feel like I'm definitely past the worst of it. Then it wasn't really that bad. I don't want to downplay it too much. It's not like it was nothing. But, but I'm sure it's been worse for other people. And, yeah. 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 Well, that's good. Yeah, it seems like you're probably through the worst of it if you're if it hasn't gotten worse yet. But fingers crossed. That's great. Yeah, we appreciate you. Yeah, you I don't it know out, if Sean. I could have done this day before yesterday. Oh, I don't think oh, I could wow, have yeah. done this. Okay. Well, yeah. glad you it worked did, out. You did feel sicker. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So extra thanks to Sean this week, um, and of course thanks to Ashay as always doing so much over there running things. Talk about uh, managing. It's like managing the Wherewood Network from behind the scenes. <laughs> 
Uh, thank you to those of you who discuss things with us over on Discord or Facebook or Twitter. You can join the conversation in any of those places. It's a lot of fun. Uh, we chat about other things as well. Uh, thank you to our patrons. We are super thankful for your presence. You are the reason we have our lights on and we can keep doing this regularly. Uh, Nina's assistance is valuable as always. Go check out goodqueenalley with one L.tumblr.com. Thanks to Joey and Jesse for the music and Kevin McLeod as well for the Valar Reritas music. Thanks to Michael Clarfeld for the video intro and the maps. And thanks to our Benjineer for the sound editing and engineering assistance. Here be dragons. In addition to Here Be Con, we know those nerds. Yeah, it seems <laughs> like they're doing a stream with all of them there together. Yeah, like a whole I know these nerds. They do I know this nerd, which is kind of like an interview thing. We've so been now on it's... it ourselves. Is he, you, you, have you done it, Sean? I haven't. Oh, well, I, we should mention. One day I'll be honored to. Yeah, maybe maybe one day Stephen will know you. <laughs> Stephen <laughs> does know you. That's great. But yeah, Aziz and I have done it. And so if you ever... Uh, want to find out random factoids about us, you can check that out and you can know these nerds. Yeah, a little uh, sort of interview style, kind of fun, uh, well, very fun and uh, low key. Yeah, they do. They have they have good times over there. Definitely check them out. I know we shot them out regularly, but there's a reason for that. So until next time, folks, we'll see you more. Uh, see you next week for more of The World of Ice and Fire. I'm having a fun guest, more fun discussions, more rabbit holes. Until then, you know what to do. Valar Reroots. <laughs> <laughs>